Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the CrocCast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the CrocCast Podcast. I'm your host Nate and today I'm joined by Mr. Dr. Christopher Brochu of the University of Iowa who is a professor of paleontology there. Dr. Brochu, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. So I uh, want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you've uh, gone to your career and what you do. Uh, somebody I'll figure that one out. I, um, no, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I've always, I mean, ever, you know, since I was a little kid, I've always kind of, I've always been fascinated by paleontology and I always wanted to be a paleontologist. Uh, more, I mean, more generally, I really just wanted to be a scientist, but, uh, eventually I did go into vertebrate paleontology, did my undergraduate. I, I'm from the East coast originally, Massachusetts and New Jersey, but I went to, I went to college at the university of Iowa. Same department I'm in now, in fact. Uh, then graduate school at the University of Texas. Uh, got my PhD there. Moved on to the uh, the Field Museum, where I spent three years as a postdoc, working on tyrannosaurs. Uh, and then I was able to move on from there back to the University of Iowa. This time as faculty, and I've been here ever since. Uh, I mean, a lot of things kind of got me into the sciences, you know, watching astronauts on the moon when I was little. That was kind of cool. Uh, catching snakes, which I, to this day, you know, the first snake I ever saw, a garter snake, remains the most beautiful animal I've ever seen. And uh, also just falling in love with dinosaurs. Uh, explaining how I got into crocs is a little bit harder. <laughs> I, I really don't know. Um Sometime during my first year in grad school in Austin, I uh, I guess I just started looking at different groups of, of vertebrates in textbooks. And the more I read about crocs, the more I, I liked them, the more I appreciated they had this, or appreciated the underappreciated, I, they have an underappreciated diversity. And I got fascinated by that. Like, you know, there's more to do here and people seem to be too interested in dinosaurs or mammals. And so, uh, kind of moved in that direction. For a long time, I was pretty much, I was one of a very few people who were doing croc phylogenetics. Now there's a lot of people doing it. And it's it's been a really good thing to see that happen because now, you know, I don't have to review all of the manuscripts that come out. And you know, I've got a lot of friends now. So it, it's it's a, not that I didn't have friends before, but I have a lot of croc friends now. And uh, so it's been really good to see that. But I, I to this day, I really don't know exactly why I got into crocs. I just sort of did. Yeah, it's one thing I noticed is uh, the more you d dive into like uh, the prehistory of crocodilians, the, it's crazy how diverse they are compared to uh, what we have left over today. Yeah, uh, I mean, one thing I've sometimes I sometimes show a, a fake cladogram that shows every crocodilian species I could think of, whether it's named or not, uh, and it's it's. I like to say it has very high posterior probabilities because I pulled it right out of my own posterior. It's just sort of, you know, where I personally think they will go when everything's resolved. And then what I'll do is I'll just click a button on my, on, you know, when I'm showing it in PowerPoint and all of the extinct lineages go away. And all you see is like a few branches here and there. And I explain that's what's alive. And so if you exclude the fossils, look at just how much of the picture you're losing, right? You're missing all of that. I think valid extinct crocodilian species just within the crown group not not including uh you know non-crown crocodiliforms outnumber living species by around nine to one so yeah yeah so um 
like one thing that I'm particularly interested in is like a uh, post Cenozoic uh, crocodilian, specifically like a uh, let's say like the South American Sebeckids or the Australasian uh, Mecasuchids, um, because you know a lot of them are actually like terrestrial animals, not like what we have for the most part today. Yeah, uh, they fill ecological roles more similar to what say large predatory mammals fill. Well, probably. Um, so I don't know if you've done any research with those groups or not. Well, Sabesids aren't really crocodilians. They're outside the crown. Um, I have worked uh, on... Are they Neosuchians? Is that the right well, they're not Neos No, they're not Neosuchians either. They're, they're Notosuchians, which are... Oh, that's, uh, that's a group that's, that's you know... I mean, they, they do have representatives in the Northern Hemisphere, but they're primarily Gondwan in their distribution. Um, but no, I mean, certain Mikasuchians are probably less... I, rather, rather than saying more terrestrial, I prefer to think of them as less semi-aquatic. But you've also got the Planocraneids, okay, things that used to be called Pristocamcines in the Northern Hemisphere during the Eocene, and oh, Paleocene and Eocene. Uh, one thing that's kind of cool about that is that if you look at uh, bring the Cenozoic, okay, just the Cenozoic, the three main radiations of hoofed croc or of semi or of, you know serrated toothed croc. Uh, you've got the Planocraneids in the north. You've got Quincana which is a Mikasukin in South America, in, excuse me, in Australia. Yeah, I, I, can, I, I can read a map. Uh, in Australia, and then you've got the Sabesids in South America. Most of them did overlap with or co-occur with mammalian predators, but their disappearance seems to coincide with the, the first appearance of members of carnivora, you know, the, the modern clade of predatory mammals. So you have, you know, first really big, uh, you know, carnivorans arriving or appearing sometime during the Eocene. That's when Planocraneids go away in Australia. Quinquana is all the way up until all, you know, all the way through the Pleistocene. It disappears when humans arrive with dogs, and then in South America, Sabesids go away with the Great American Interchange when North American predators you know the ancestors of jaguars and things like that kind of went south uh i don't know that there's a causal relationship there i've only got three data points and i haven't really looked at the precision of the co-occurrences but uh you know there does seem to be that tendency uh i like to call the planocranians the hoof crocs i mean you've got the same number of fingers and toes as any croc five in the front four in the back but each one ends in a little you know the ungles the the, the Phalanges at the tips are hoof shaped a little bit and uh, they're blunt. Okay. And so I, I, I like to call them hoof crocs. They're not, I don't think they actually had hooves, but that's, that's what I call them. Yeah. Let's well, say it's more similar to like, uh, I guess, like the forelimbs of a um, hadrosaur. <sighs> yes and no. I mean, a hadrosaur, the, you know, the hadrosaurs, of course, don't have thumbs. But, you know, these three fingers here would have been completely encased in tissue, forming that what they call the mitt. And then the pinky okay. sticks, because I guess they're always drinking tea politely. But those middle three toes would be kind of held together as a single functional unit. Planocraneids, it wouldn't have been that way. They were still independent, as far as I can tell. I mean, they were still independent digits. Yeah. So uh, for people not familiar with uh, Plato Korean's Mechasuchids and uh, Sabesids, do uh, you want to give a general, uh, general description of what they probably look like? Sure. Uh, well, they, they, there are some differences. Sabesids, like I said, they're kind of, they're, they're related to crocodilians, but, you know, there is some distance. Those occurred in 
South America from the Paleocene all the way to the late Miocene. Uh, there are some uh, some fossils in Europe and in North Africa during the Cenozoic that might be Sabicids, or if they're not Sabicids, they might be, they're they're probably some other type of, of Notosuchian. Uh, but otherwise, they're from South America, and uh, they, they're outwardly similar to a planocrinid or, or or to Quincana, which is the Mikasukin. Mikasukins are crocodiloids, if not crocodilids. They're you know they're closer to crocodiles and to gators, uh, and most of them were standard croc shaped. But you did have some outliers, including Quincana. Um, these and uh, the planocrinids, like I said, are Paleocene and Eocene. They all have sort of a laterally compressed but dorsoventrally deep skull. Unfortunately, I don't have one with me. Um, the teeth were compressed and, in most cases, serrated. There are some that don't have serrated teeth, but they were at least, you know, labial, labiolingually compressed, like like blades. Um, the muscle attachment surfaces are really robust on the limb bones. Um, there are some who have argued they were they could have been bipedal. That, that's nonsense. They were not bipedal, but uh, they probably spent less time on in the water than other crocs. One thing I will say about, especially uh, Bovarisuchus, the one that used to be called Pristacampsis, the one that we find in North America and Germany and Italy and a few other places, France. Uh, those. Uh, they weren't especially big. You know, you think of, you know, predatory croc, you think something gigantic roaming the landscape. Actually, uh, the biggest one was probably, you know, 12 feet, which is respectable. Well, most were a lot smaller than that. And the bigger skulls look for all the world like a giant dwarf caiman skull, a giant smooth-fronted caiman skull, paleosaurus. <laughs> Uh, in Paleosuchus, the teeth are a little bit compressed. They're never serrated, and they're not as profoundly compressed as they are in these things. But, you know, Paleosuchus and Osteolemus in Africa, uh, both of them spend less time in the water than other crocs, especially at night. They like to hang out on forest floors, right? And so I sometimes yeah. wonder if, you know, instead of trying to look at these as, you know, an Archosaurian attempt to reconquer the land or something, uh, maybe we ought to think of them as just really, really big paleosuchus type animals. I don't know that, but I, I just, you know, last time I really spent some time looking at a nice, well, three-dimensionally preserved ovarysuchus skull, it struck me, this looks a lot like, like paleosuchus in many ways. Yeah, so instead of uh, trying to recreate T-Rex, it was just taking paleosuchus and dialing it to 11. Something like that. Yeah, I, I'm just, again, I'm just throwing out ideas here. These are not ideas I've ever really tested. They're, they're just, you know, observations I've made, casual observations that that may or may not be leading me astray. I don't know. But that's kind of how I've always, that's kind of what I've been thinking recently. Yeah. They're kick-ass animals regardless. They're just, you know. Yeah. Big enough to scare me, so. Yeah. Uh See, I believe it's uh, Barimasuchus. Is that the really large sebacid in South America? Which one? Uh, Barimasuchus. I could be messing, mixing the name. I, I don't. I, 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 it possibly. I'm not really an expert on sebacid, so. Okay. Uh, but, but I, they, some of them did get big. Yes, there was that, that. There was a recently published one. I think that's what you're referring to. That 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 got yeah. really big. Yeah. But South America as a whole, it just had from what I've read, which is only you know, relatively top level stuff surface level stuff i mean uh south america seemed to have 
a lot of diversity in crocodilians up until relatively recently, um, especially, you know, like uh, Perusaurus and all those other extinct uh, Cayman lineages. Didn't they also have a gharial lineage, a few gharial species? Yeah, you know? actually, it's actually more complicated than that. I actually was in Brazil back in July and August looking at stuff in uh, the, the Universidade Federal do Acre in Rio Branco, way out in the western part of Brazil, which is where they've got that truly gigantic Purosaurus skull. So I, was, I finally had the privilege of seeing that. Uh, there, I mean, you've got the Sabicids, but then you've got, you know, just all kinds of weird caimanines, caimans all over the place down there. Some of them were truly enormous, like Purosaurus. That one was probably 30 to 35 feet as an adult. Uh, there were also Gripasuchine gharials. Okay, so you've got things like Gripasuchus and Sikisikesuchus and uh, uh, Econogavialis and a few others. And some of those got bloody big too. Uh, there were also some oddballs that we don't quite understand. In fact, the reason I went to Brazil was to look at something called Caractasuchus, uh, which is only known from the lower jaws. There's other material that others have kind of speculated might be referable to it i'm not sure i buy that but they uh you know it's a totally different tube-headed crocodiliform we don't know if it's a crocodilian or not there's just not enough preserved uh but oddly enough I mean, there's there's you know fossil representatives of caiman the genus caiman uh very few of paleosuchus very few of paleosuchus and uh the same is true by the way of osteolemus over in africa we get almost none of that uh, and most of the material that's been referred to osteolemus turns out to be something else. Uh, and that's probably an environmental signal that we're getting. They, they tend to live in, you know, rainforested areas that aren't always so great for preservation. So I, I, that's what I suspect is happening. But uh, the other thing about the Caymans that people don't often appreciate is that there's a good fossil record of them in North America, too. Uh, in fact, it, depending on how some analysis, depending on which analysis you're looking at, uh, forms like Botosaurus and Brachycampsa, uh, which are definitely alligatoroids from the late Cretaceous and Paleocene of, uh, of North America, they sometimes turn out to be really early caimanine lineages. I'm not sure I agree with that, but my analyses tend to support that too. I'm just not sure I, I buy it. But uh, we also have forms like Tsoa Beachy from, uh, from the Green River Formation, which is going to be early Eocene. There are Caymans from uh, south and west Texas. You know, they, they, did, they did have occurrences here in North America. Hmm. So uh, what do you say? Well, how is this? Uh, so, you know, Chinese alligators over in East Asia, American alligators, you know, here in the United States, and then... Uh, Caymans are in South America. It's possible. Um, or you say is uh, alligatoroids uh, radiation points? That's actually a really good question because uh, there are very different. And a couple of my students have studied this. They haven't published it yet, but they've looked at it. Is that uh, if you look at the biogeographic distribution of, of crocodilian clades, truly crocodilian clades, some groups like the gharials true and false, it doesn't matter how you link them, uh, and the crocodiloids show 
biogeographic patterns that require substantial numbers of, of uh, the crossings of oceanic barriers, marine barriers. Now, crocodilids today have salt excreting glands in the tongue and other physiological uh, pools that allow them to deal with the excess salt. They don't drink salt water, but they do ingest it and they will feed in salt water. Gators don't have those. And so if you look at their biogeographic patterns, they do tend to have fewer, um, you, they tend to require fewer transoceanic crossings. Now, gators and caimans can tolerate salt water for a time. There are plenty of occurrences we know of in, you know, coastal areas, but especially after a storm, but uh, they tend to avoid it a little more than crocs do. Probably their origination point is going to be North American. Okay, because the oldest fossils are all North American. We've got, you know, Brachycampsa, we've got Stangerocampsa, we've also got Lydiasuchus, which is a uh, uh, crocodile, which is in a, a, the basal most known alligatoroid. Uh, moreover, all of the other early represented, earliest representatives of clades, like the crocodiloids, the oldest one we've got there is an animal called Prodiplocynodon, uh, also North American. So I suspect it's going to be North American, but there were some very early extensions out of North America. So you've got one lineage in Europe called Diplocytodon, which is not an alligatorid, but it's an alligatoroid. They're found only in, as far as the literature tells us, only in Europe. Uh, and then uh, you get the Chinese gator. We still have no idea how the hell that got to China. Okay. My best guess is that, you know, when we were kids, we would dig holes and, hey, we're going to dig all the way to China. Chinese alligators like to burrow. Maybe they burrowed there. I don't know. But um, they uh, that one's a more recent radiation. But you've got at least one uh, dispersal event to Europe with Diplocynodon. And actually another one because you've also got uh, alligatorines over there, things like Hasiacosuchus that look like North American Alignathosuchus. Uh, and then, of course, you've got various caimans. Now, the caimans, again, probably multiple dispersals back and forth. Europe multiple dispersals at least two or three that i can think of uh, but once these groups arrive there they typically just stay there and radiated okay uh, european alligatoroids well the alligatorines died out during the eocene the uh, alligator the diplocynodon persisted into the miocene so you know between I don't know the exact age of the last of them. I'm going to guess around 15 million, but, uh, you know, so they, they persisted there a little longer, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably North American originally with some dispersal events out. A lot of people like to try to, uh, prefer to invoke vicariance to explain distributions, you know, divisions of a geographic barrier. The problem there is that these groups didn't appear until these continents were already very widely separated. Uh, so, uh, unless you want to have lineages persisting back into the early Cretaceous with no fossil representation, uh, you'd have to basically rely on dispersal in this case. Yeah. But, yeah, with uh, Chinese alligators, it's actually kind of a continuation of an interesting trend with uh, East Asia and Eastern North America having very similar uh, herpetofauna. Herpetofauna and freshwater organisms, too, not just reptiles and amphibians, but you know some plants as well and fish and yeah it is an interesting pattern isn't it um we have cryptobranchids they have cryptobranchids uh 
they have uh, some dipsatic snakes. We have dipsatic snakes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, they got some really. You're right. Those those patterns are interesting, and they've got gators too. Um, one question, one question that comes to me though is just how closely related are the Chinese and American alligators? Molecular dates draw that that divergence back way before the earliest fossils on the Asian side are present, which is about 20 million. Now I treat molecular divergence states with a huge grain of salt. Uh, I, I've worked with them myself. They're extremely sensitive to input parameters. And in some cases, a small error in your stratigraphic calibration, whether you're doing tips or nodes, it can, can lead to a pretty big error. So I, I tend to not take them all that seriously. Nevertheless, in this case, they do draw it further back, which substantially further back. Uh, but, you know, we, we just, it, it, which actually would help in a way if it was an ancient divergence, because it would help, you know, get them over the Bering Land Bridge while that area was still kind of within their thermal tolerances, right? I mean, we've got alligators yeah. on Ellesmere Island, or alligatorines anyway, on Ellesmere Island during the Middle East, during the Uinton land mammal age. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that would be of assistance, but you know, we just don't know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, crocodilian's ranges have obviously shrunk down more to the equator as the planet has overall, you know, cooled and dried out as the Cenozoic has advanced. So, uh, would you think that maybe it had uh, cut off uh, uh, Chinese alligators from the North American origin point? Probably, yeah. It, it's, I mean, one thing. Okay, one thing. Let me let me make you know, make a side point here, real quick. Uh, if you look at croc diversity over time, it tracks very closely with global temperature curve uh, proxies. You know, uh, you know, yeah. carbon isotope excursions and things like that. But if you look at local and regional patterns, those changes typically we start seeing drops in diversity. Uh, well before the area gets too cold for them. Okay, so I think you know what's what's what we're what the reason temperature is having an impact on diversity isn't by causing, you know, pop not by causing all these multi-species assemblages to crash. It's by contracting the thermal tolerance ranges for them, and so you're losing some of the outlying range. But if you look regionally, like if you look at the western interior of North America during the Eocene. Or if you look at Europe during the Eocene, or if you look at Africa during the Miocene, okay, uh, and some, and subsequently after that, uh, I mean, in Kenya, you go from at seven million about five croc species overlapping to in most sites these days in East Africa in the East African Rift Valley system one, okay. There's multiple species in the rift, but only one normally would occur. Uh, it's still plenty warm. What we're seeing, I think, is a pattern that has more to do with rainfall and dryness and wetland area and vegetation, actually, playing a role in, in causing, you know, for example, Western North America, you go from having five or six species in a unit to only having one or two. Uh, but that's got more to do, I think, with, with uh, wetland area than with temperature. As for the Chinese alligator, um, trying to answer that question is going to depend on figuring out when they got there. And there's just really, you know, it's really hard to say that. There's an assemblage of fossils in Asia called the Orientalisucans, uh, which are known from the late Cretaceous into the Eocene. And when they were first described, they were thought to be alligatoroids. Uh, 
and some were some had suggested that you know maybe future analyses would draw them close to to the Chinese alligator. No analysis has done that. And actually, the ones that I've seen, I'm now I, I lean strongly against them even being crown group crocodilians at all. I think they're closely related. They're Yasukians, but they're not within the crown. Now, my analyses haven't supported that yet. And then there's other analyses underway. I'm waiting for them to be completed before I jump in. And besides, I've got other things to do. But um, the uh, I, I'm not whether they're whether they're alligatoroids or not. They're not related to the Chinese gator. Okay, that that I think is now clear. Uh, the oldest fossils we have in Asia that can be referred to any sort of modern lineage are early Miocene in age. Uh, this form called Alligator Luicus from uh, uh, the Lin Chu locality in Ch uh, Shandong province, which is it's sort of like a Chinese version of Messel, but much younger um, to Miocene site. So uh, we've got that, but you know, we really don't know when they got there. We really don't. I mean, presumably over the Bering Land Bridge, right? Uh, but we really don't know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, um, we'll talk about uh, gharials and how they're kind of connected and related to uh, crocodilians and sort of their uh, fossil history. Okay. Well, uh, gharials have... Okay. There are a lot of groups of crocodiliforms that have that long tubular snout. Every one of them is phylogenetically problematic, uh, which has led me to conclude that the selective pressure toward having a long tubular snout was the potential to piss off systematists in the future, because we just don't know how they're related to each other. Uh, but within the, you've got, you know, today you've got the Indian gharial, Gavi Alice, and you get the false gharial or the Malayan gharial, uh, Tomastoma. Both are Asian. Both are restricted to freshwater. It is clear that they became restricted to Asia and to freshwater independently because you've got animals that are clearly related to Mystema all over uh, Eurasia during the, uh, and, 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 and we have them in Africa too. We have them uh, not so much in North America, but we certainly, we do have some, but they're primarily known yeah. from, uh, you know, Europe and all over the place during the uh, during the Cenozoic, gharials, uh, true gharials, the gavialines or gavialids or whatever you want to call it, whatever term you want to use, molecular analyses conclusively draw them close to Temistema. Morphological data typically don't. There are some analyses that have drawn them in there. I, I take issue with some of how they how the authors coded some of their characters. Nevertheless, there is support for that, uh, but. Uh, you know, there were still not, the problem is we're still not quite sure how all the fossils related to these things are going to fall out under that scheme. So there's one group of animals called the thoracosaurs, which are known from the late Cretaceous and the Paleocene. They're known from Western North America, they're from, excuse me, from Eastern North America, Western as well, there's a few occurrences there, and in Western Europe, uh, and Northern Europe too. There's one, from, for example, from Sweden uh, in Poland. But, uh, they look like gharials, and my analyses were consistently drawing them out as basal members of the gavialoid lineage, closer to gavialis and to mystema. There's one morphological analysis that doesn't support that, uh, although I think there are, I, I don't agree with how the characters were, were, were handled in that particular paper. Uh, 
that might actually turn out to be right. They may actually be out, Thoracosaurus might actually turn out to be outside the crown only because if Gavialis and Temistum are related, they probably diverged during the Cenozoic and these things first appear in the Cretaceous. So, uh, but the fact, a couple of things are kind of cool about, about both groups. I mean, you've got Garial, a big Garial assemblage in South America, for example, right? Both today, Temistum and Gavialis are only found in freshwater uh, settings. Uh, but their fossils are typically found in coastal and marginal marine deposits. So they were clearly, you know, much more salt tolerant then than they are now. And that salt tolerant, that lack of salt tolerance, or at least the restrict, you know, at least the unwillingness to occur in salt water occurred independently in both groups fairly recently. Uh, and they had much broader geographic distributions then than now. Okay. They're, We've got representatives of these groups, for example, in the South Pacific. We've got them in, uh, you know, Australia. I mean, and uh, the Solomon Islands. We've got them in uh, South America. We've got them in Africa. We've got them in North America. We've got them everywhere. And uh, so these are groups that started out as apparently coastal or marginal marine animals that later you know, became restricted to freshwater settings. And in both cases, during the late Cenozoic, probably Miocene at the at the oldest. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, isn't there also like a species of gharial that was native to like uh, the Florida coasts as well? Well, there's there's tube-snouted crocs in Florida. There's an animal called, for example, Thecacampsa, uh, which is also sometimes called Gavialisuchus, but Thecacampsa is the, the proper name. Uh, and that one's known from, there's at least three species of it in North America. There's Therac, there's Thecacampsa carolinense, Thecacampsa antiqua, and Thecacampsa americana. Uh, americana is the one from Florida. Uh, all three are from the southeast or the eastern part of North America. Uh, my analyses at first drew them closer to Temistema. Uh, that might still be true, or they might be outside Temistema plus Gavialis. We're still trying to sort that out. Uh, but those are present in, I mean, Carolinense is known from the e Oligocene, so 25 to 30 million. Uh, the others are known from the Miocene. And I, I could be misremembering. I almost want to say one of them is known from the Pliocene, but I, I have to look it up to make sure I'm not having you know i'm not confusing myself with something else yeah so uh do you have any idea why uh gavialid uh diversity has declined so much or why their range has been so much more restricted not really uh but uh you know most groups have have dwindled in diversity and and in their range i mean in the northern hemisphere that drop in diversity happened between the early and late Eocene. So somewhere around 40 million, okay? You go from having, in North America and in Europe, you go from having, you know, five or whatever species to having just one. In North America, it's alligator. And in Europe, it's diplocynodon. Uh, South America, Africa, Australia, those areas remained very diverse much longer. And, uh, but they nevertheless did drop in diversity between the, you know, especially during the late Miocene and Pliocene, they really began to drop down. Uh, and again, I think that's got to do with the combination of temperature, the thermal tolerance is being restricted. So we no longer have, you know, 
you know, longer have crocodilians alive in Nebraska, for example, okay? Uh, even though we have fossils of them all the way into the Miocene. We, uh, or, and we don't have so many in Patagonia either. But uh, regionally, I think it's got to do with drying more than anything else, uh, which is why people are talking about, well, will croc ranges expand as climate changes? Maybe, but remember, crocs aren't just restricted by temperature. They're restricted by, you know, they're, they're semi-aquatic. And so if, yeah. if, you know, as the earth gets warmer, if it also gets drier, then we're not necessarily going to see expansion of their ranges. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is up to the individual thinking about it. I would love to have a population of alligators in the Iowa River, but. Oh, I'd uh, love to have populations of alligators in Ohio where I'm at as well, so. But I mean, I also know that that it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but. Uh, and I'm not saying that global warming is a good thing. I'm just saying you know, it might be good for the crocs. But again, it's it's there's other variables that control their distribution. It's wetland area, in some cases, vegetation type too. This is something we're learning in East Africa because you go if you look okay if you look at the early Miocene in the East African Rift Valley systems. We're talking about you know the Rift Valley system goes from you know basically Ethiopia down through one branch goes down through Kenya and Tanzania and into Mozambique. The other one uh, goes through. Northern Kenya, but then into Uganda, Rwanda, the, the Afri great African Great Lake countries, uh, down through Malawi and uh, into, into Mozambique, with Lake Victoria in the middle. Uh, most of the stuff we have from the early Miocene is actually from Kenya. It's either from around Lake Victoria or Lake Turkana. In the early Mi and into the early part of the middle Miocene, what we get are giant dwarf crocodiles. Okay, what we get are we get an animal called the generalized crocs are, you know, what I mean generalized is, you know, the basic triangular head, semi-aquatic type of thing. Yeah. What we get are animals called kinyang, which we named last year, and brochucus, which is not my fault. Um, and they're related to osteolemus. Kinyang, you know, a big one would have been between, you know, like three and four meters, like, you know, 10, you know, 12 or 14 feet. No, maybe not four meters. American alligator size, roughly? Less, but not by much. I mean, yeah, we're talking like, you know, 10, 12 feet on average for a male. Um, but uh, they're related to osteolemus, which is, and they're not giant crocodiles, but they're giant dwarf crocodiles, you see. Um, there is scant material between 15 and 7 million. And what is known hasn't been published yet, so I'm not going to say anything about it. But uh, at 7 million, we don't get those animals anymore. We get crocodilus, Paleo-African crocodilus, which, by the way, the crocodilus we get there is unrelated to modern African crocodilus, what I call Neo-African crocodilus, crocodilus Lodicus and Sucus, right? It's, it's a really cool pattern. So you get you get these giant dwarf crocs in the early Miocene, then they go away. By the time you get back to the late Miocene, 7 million, 8 million, something like that, you're getting Paleo-African crocodilus. You're also getting mechastops or things related to mechastops, maybe not mechastops itself. Uh, and then what happens after that is you start losing diversity from the late Miocene to the present. Now, there are, there are, other, there are tube-snouted crocs there, too. There's an animal called Euthecodon, which is also related to crocodilus, also related to osteolemus. And there's uh, there are gharials that my student, uh, Dr. Amanda Adams, uh, I think she goes by Dr. Amanda Torilo these days. She's at Fort Hayes State University. She studied those for her dissertation. Uh, 
most of them are unnamed, but there's all, you know, the Ugarials throughout there too. Those two groups seem to persist from the early Miocene up until at least the Pliocene, all right? But the generalized crocs are completely different on either side of that, of that gap in, during the Miocene. Uh, now, what's going on? So, you know, at least at low, I mean, that's when the Rift Valley actually opened up, okay? And there's all kinds of volcanic activity, especially a big pulse of it at 12 million. Uh, there's other changes going on too. I mean, these rift lakes uh, appear and sometimes they dry up. Sometimes rivers flow into the lakes. Sometimes they flow out of the lakes into the Mediterranean or into the Indian Ocean or through the Proto-Congo into the Atlantic. Uh, the water there can be alkaline. It can be non-alkaline. It can be salty or not salty. Uh, temperature of the lakes changes. So there's a lot going on that might explain it. But what we think is happening my best guess is it's vegetation because osteolemus only occurs in forested wetlands okay yeah. and there are widespread forests in east africa when those animals were predominant by the time you get to the late miocene we're starting to see the breakup of these continuous forests and the rise of you know more open settings you know you know there's still going to be forested areas but you're still you're going to get more open woodlands and savannas that kind of thing uh and so in um, Osteolemus prefers the forested settings mostly because of its nesting behavior. Now, there are some flies in the ointment of that idea. One is that we don't get mechastops or mechastopins in the early Miocene. We get them in the late Miocene. And they're also forest-preferring animals, too. Uh, also, if you look at the sites that we get in uh, the early, where these crocs occur in the early and late, early middle Miocene, if you actually look at the paleoecological data, these were not closed canopy rainforest settings. They were more open settings, like wooded, okay, for sure, uh, but maybe more riparian, you know, river-based type of stuff. And so it's 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 not, you know, although I, that's my preferred explanation now, there are some weaknesses I have to acknowledge. And we're still, this is a project that's still ongoing. I think probably most of the rest of my career is going to be dedicated to the East African record because there's just so much there to be done. People have been collecting crocs there for decades because that's where humans come from, right? That's the cradle. Yeah. Of humanity. And so the area has been crawled all over looking for fossils of everything. There's paleomagnetic data, paleoecological data. There's uh, volcanic units that can be radiometrically dated. I mean, it's just, you know, it's in plus it's a beautiful part of the world. So, with awesome people and, and great museums. Uh, nevertheless, it's a real puzzle is to, I mean, there is some material in that gap. I'm not really going to talk about that does kind of shed some light on that, but I'll hold off on talking about that. But, yeah. But yeah, it's, that, that, so what I'm thinking is that we're looking at a variety of ecological variables that control their diversity. People are focusing on temperature, but there's others that need to be considered as well. Yeah. So it's also interesting to note that the crocodilian species that evolved alongside us are the ones that most view us as prey, i.e. the Nile croc. Yeah. And by the way, you know, so like I said, there's two different assemblages of crocodilus in Africa during the late season. There's paleo-African crocodilus, which first appears around 7 million. Uh, at least the stuff I'm going to talk about is appears at 7 million. Uh, and that is... Uh, the oldest stuff is unnamed yet, but you've got species like Crocodilus anthropophagus from Olduvai Gorge. And by the way, there are early human remains from that 
site with crock bites on them, which is why we called it Anthropophagus. Um, yeah, name, yeah. And there's also Crocodilus Thorbjarnus and I from places like Kubifora and the Omo sequence. These would be, you know, Northern Kenya, Southern Ethiopia. And some of those were big. I mean, some of those were 25 plus feet in length. Uh, yeah. Not all of them, but a lot of them were. I mean, they've got some just enormous skulls in Nairobi. Uh, but those, you know, in fact, there's a possibility that they might not even be Crocodilus sensu stricto. They're related to each other. And they sort of form, you know, they sort of form, you know, they, if in analyses, they are kind of within Crocodilus, but not very well resolved within it. We do know that they are not related to Nilotocus or Sucus, Neo-African Crocodilus. And in West and in East Africa, those don't appear until less than 200,000 years ago. So up until, and you know, when, when Paleo-African Crocodilus disappears is a little unclear. The oldest material that comes to mind is around 500,000, although there's probably something younger that I'm overlooking uh, or forgetting about. But certainly Neo-African Crocodilus, we don't know where it came from. I mean, Africa, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, Central Africa or whether it was an Asian lineage, that came in or European even there's crocodilus in Southern Europe during the Miocene uh, that, you know, we really don't know. We do know that Neo-African crocodilus is related to Neotropical crocodilus. Those are the crocs. Yeah. Kind of the I was going to get to that. Yeah. And you know, my friend Yvonne Heckela, who's the world authority on sort of that part of croc phylogeny uh, is, you know, her analyses suggest that, and I forget which one is more closely related to Neotropical than the other, whether it's Sucus or... I believe or it's uh, East African uh, Nilodicus. Right, yeah. Now, my analyses don't support that, but that doesn't. But neither do they refute it, okay? So, um, you know, it is possible. I, I'm not so sure I... Part of the reason I'm skeptical is that uh, the divergence between those two species can't have been that old, given how very, very similar they are to each other, okay? But we've got fossils in the Western Hemisphere starting, as far as the literature is concerned, around 5 million. Uh, and so, you know, what's going on, you know, if, if that's the case, and those lineages have been separate for 5 million years, which I have a hard time buying, all right, just given how similar they are. They just, I don't think they evolved that slowly. Everyone says, oh, they're living fossils. No, they're not. And, uh, uh so, you know, but again, my, I, I have nothing to refute that either. What everyone does agree on is that Neo-African and Neotropical crocodilus are closely related and that crocodilus crossed the Atlantic at some point uh, within the past five to 10 or 15 million years. Uh, and so did the Gariel. Well, Gariel's probably crossed much further back, more like 30 million, but they also crossed the Atlantic because we get them in places like Puerto Rico and uh, uh South America, uh, from starting in the Oligocene. Uh, I feel like I'm meandering all over the place and not being coherent. I apologize. I'm grotesquely. Oh, I'm, I'm enjoying all of this so far. So I'm just I'm just really under caffeinated is the problem. But uh, I think the uh, uh, I mean everyone agrees that the Neo African and Neo Tropical crocodiles are related. There is some debate as to whether what I call the Indo-Pacific crocodilus radiation. So that would be the saltwater croc, the Australian freshie, the mugger crocodile in South Asia. New Guinea's um, and Philippines and all that. 
Yeah. Now those may, my analysis suggests they do form a clade. Okay. Molecular, and I'm talking about my analysis, I'm talking about my morphological analyses. Molecular analyses typically don't support that. Some, some of them I think do, but most don't, uh, which complicates our efforts to figure out biogeography of these animals. Okay. Are they ancestrally African or are they ancestrally Indo-Pacific or somewhere else? Uh, one thing that has become very clear to me is that you cannot study crocodilian biogeography only from the living species. That is a wasted effort, in my opinion, because, I mean, if you look at gharials, yeah, India and, and surrounding region today, but in the, in the past, all over the place, right? Uh, same with crocodilus. We've got it in Southern Europe. How does that play into the whole scenario? And now we've got Paleo-African versus Neo-African. I mean, it's a really complicated picture. Um, I mean, there's 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 a there's an ex, ex, extinct population in the Seychelles. I've seen some of that material. And in the past, it, you know, first everyone assumed it was Nilonicus, but then a paper in uh, I think the 80s argued that actually it's porosis in the Seychelles near Africa. Okay. Uh, now I've seen it, and it's not Nilonicus. I agree with that, and it does look Indo-Pacific. But I'm not sure it actually is porosis. It might be a new species. It might be, I mean, it's got some similarities, kind of weird ones with Siamensis, the Siamese crocodile. Yeah. I'm not saying it's that. I'm just saying it's got some similarities to it. That needs to, that, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on that stuff. Uh, bottom line is you've got, you know, occurrences all over the place that, that completely conflict with what the modern lineages alone tell you. All right. Yeah. So, uh, not a big island, kind of, you know, have kind of a confluence of uh, East Africa and Indo Pacific is Madagascar, and that kind of has a bit of interesting crocodilian history. Uh, doesn't yep. have, didn't have a native uh, genus that re recently went extinct. Uh, was it like Voy or something like that? Yes. In fact, I'm the one who named it. I, I want to hear for acknowledge two different groups. One is Yvonne with her lab group, who's been looking at ancient DNA from Voy, they were able to extract that. And also a group at uh, University of uh, Université de Lyon in France, led by Jérémy Martin, um, who are looking at Voy, they're, they're looking at the detailed morphology of that animal in closer, you know, closer inspection. Um, when I looked at it, in fact, that was, with a, that was one of the very fo first fossils I ever studied. Really? And it, yeah, and it brings up a very fond memory for me uh, because, I, this, the material I looked at was at the American Museum in New York, American Museum of Natural History. This would have been 91, 92, something like that. I mean, pretty long time ago, maybe even 90, more likely 91. Anyway, uh, Mark Norell uh, had not, he was fairly new at the American Museum at the time. And he had worked on crocs for his dissertation, mostly alligatoroids for his dissertation. Uh, well, at that point, he was kind of moving on more toward dinosaurs, but he asked if I would look at this stuff. He opened up a couple of drawers, and I saw these skulls, and the thing had horns. And I'm like, what the F word? You know, and uh, and it looked like one or two of them had might be spear wounds, like, you know, like these things overlapped with people in Madagascar. Uh, they first, as far, I think humans first arrived around 2,000 years ago in Madagascar. I could be wrong about that, but that's right. That's, that's, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, but uh, so I looked at it. Now, 
the week before I looked at that material, I had spent time in the herpetology collections at the AMNH. This was I, the following week I was going down to paleo, up actually, if you look at where these floors are, up to vertebrate paleo. And uh, when I flipped over the skull of Voy, it was then called Crocodilus robustus. Okay, I flipped over that skull and I looked at the palate. And I just remember my jaw. This is, by the way, late at night. Back then, you could actually go in with a bag of garlic knots from Ray's on Amsterdam into the AMNH at two in the morning if you wanted to. Uh, you can't do that anymore. But I did. I maybe it wasn't two in the morning, but I came in. All right. And, you know, so I flipped the skull over and I looked at the palate and I thought, my God, I had seen ex some very detailed similarities the week before, but not on Crocodilus, on Osteolemus. Oh. Okay. And, you know, so I coded it up and I, I ran the analysis. I didn't publish that paper until 07. I should have probably should have published it soon, but I finally got that published. And my analyses were indeed having it as this, as the closest known relative to Osteolemus. Okay. In fact, when I first went to East Africa in 07 to look at some of these fossils, at that point, my working sort of model was that a lot of the crocs we would find in East Africa would be osteolemids. And that had been when I first saw what was then called Crocodilus pigidae. It's now, it now has the unfortunate name of Brochicus. Um, I saw some of that in London, and that also had those similarities. And I looked at what is now called Remasuchus loidae from the early Miocene of Egypt. Same thing. Okay. So then I went to East Africa. I started looking at much younger material, Pleistocene material from Tanzania, Pleistocene and then Pliocene material from East, from Kenya. Uh, and what I saw was like, at first, the thing had the upturned squamosals, had little horns. And so I did my little happy dance. Yeah, I've got Voy, but it's in Tanzania. But then I looked at the rest of the skull and realized I was looking at crocodilus, not Voy at all. It was just an animal that also happened to have the horns. That was Anthropophagus. Uh, I guess those squamosal horns do evolve multiple times in uh, crocodilus with both like uh, Romifer and Simensis. Exactly, exactly. And those are definitely independent because they're 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 very different in detail. And and so and by the way, there was also a horned alligator, Ceratosuchus. Huh. Look it up from the Paleocene of Colorado. Um, and those horns were even proportionally more prominent. But um, the uh, but I looked at Voy and I published it. And so it, you know, in 07, so part of my ongoing model was was falsified yeah early miocene we've got osteolemons late miocene other than euthecodon and maybe mechastuffs depending on the analysis you look at no uh, but uh voy was consistently coming out that way and then yvonne's group yvonne in particular was able to extract dna from subfossil material of voids recently enough extinct you can get good dna from it you can get good markers and she and her colleagues ran the analyses and lo and behold, they have it closer to Crocodilus. Now, it's not within Crocodilus, so, you know, it's still void. It's not, it doesn't have to go back to Crocodilus robustus, but it's still coming up as closer to, closer to, uh, closer to Crocodilus. Now, the analysis, we did, we did similar uh, molecular, combined molecular morphological analyses when we described Kinyang. And our analyses neither confirmed nor refuted that. They actually kind of were less resolved. Uh, mostly because we were using we were using slightly different sample attacks and a different morphological data set, uh, so that made that's probably why that's happening. We weren't running exactly the same analyses, just a similar one. Uh, but uh, you know, and in the detailed morphology, I'm, I'm beginning to revisit it 
to see where I might have gone wrong. Uh, and I think I may have. I think I've identified some features that might actually reverse the morphological tree as well. Uh, I mean, falsification sucks, but it's it's uh, part of life, right? So yeah. that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm leaning toward. But you know, keep your eyes open for more work, especially by uh, Jeremy Martin's group. It's being led by a student whose name, unfortunately, I've forgotten. But also uh, Yvonne at Fordham University in New York, who's working on the ADNA side of things, and it's it's really an exciting time to be working on Boy. Yeah, uh, I just want to uh, stop real quick and ask how much time you have left because it's almost eleven o'clock. So. Uh, I can I don't I don't teach until one thirty Central. So okay, so I have plenty of time though. I just want to make sure I had time to ask one last question, but yeah, since we bet. have more time, you bet. Um, so. You know, Crocodilus is a genus that has literally a worldwide distribution across the equatorial regions. Um, Circumtropical circum circum is the way I would phrase it, but yeah, it's worldwide. Yeah. So, you know, you know, obviously has you know different branches and clusters all over the place. But what would you say is the origin and radiation point of uh, Crocodilus? Earth. <laughs> Really, that's that's an that is really an open question because again, we don't have good clarity on how the Indo-Pacific forms are related. If you look at just the extant forms, you have Neotropical. Everyone agrees that's monophyletic. Okay, then you've got Neo-African, which may or may not be monophyletic, but it definitely is with Neotropical. Okay, that everyone agrees on. Then you've got, and those would be. You know, then you've got the Indo-Pacific forms, which may form a clade. That's what my analysis suggests, and it's actually what I think might be true, although not all, not all do. In which case, if, if you have a sort of a paraphyletic Indo-Pacific crocodilus, that suggests it's Indo-Pacific somewhere, probably South Asia or something like that. Uh, and in fact, the oldest crocodilus we have are from uh, the Shivalik sequence of South Asia, sort of uh, India and Pakistan, modern-day India and Pakistan. Uh, but if it's monophyletic, then it's a little unclear. And certain fossils really haven't been robustly pinpointed phylogenetically. The European ones in particular, this thing called Crocodilus bambolii, which a friend and colleague of mine, Massimo Delfino, has argued is probably not a valid species. Whether it's a valid species or not, I think there's enough that we can include. And I've added some characters to it and it's helped resolve it. But uh, you know, we just, and there's some new discoveries in the Western hemisphere that may end up upturning things. I'm not at liberty to discuss them. So, uh, you know, we just, we don't have a good enough handle on the relationships within extant crocodilus, much less the fossils to really say where they're from. Uh, I mean, it, some people have argued it may be the Western hemisphere. I don't necessarily think that's likely to be true, but I can't reject it. Um, uh, so it's that's really an open question right now. There's a, I mean, there's there's a lot more to be done, especially when including uh, morphological data and fossils. Uh, and there's other fossils that might yield some ancient DNA too. Uh, yeah. yeah. Another complicating factor is the nomenclature. Okay. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if you uh, so there's a, a fossil. There was a fossil found in Egypt around 1915 or so. Uh, and it was named Crocodilus loidi. It's around 18 million years in age. It's really Miocene. Uh, now, crocodiles had been found all over Africa after that, 
and they were just either just assumed to be Crocodilus neuroticus or just Crocodilus sp. They weren't named. In the mid '80s, uh, an Israeli paleontologist named Aitan Chernov decided that some of the fossils he was looking at in East Africa were, in fact, Crocodilus loidae, that species. Okay. And so he referred all the, and the, the, this thing goes down from the early Miocene all the way up into like the Pleistocene, which is, gives the species a long honking range. And some of them look very different. So he, you know, he argued, well, that's probably intraspecific variation, which is an interesting conclusion. And then other authors began referring other African crocs to Loidae. And then Glenn Storrs, a friend of mine, published a, an analysis, of, a reanalysis of crocs from part of East Asia where he accepted that conclusion that these things were loidi, but then he looked at published phylogenetic analyses, mine included, that showed loidi was not crocodilus. And so he renamed it Remasuchus, which means rift crocodile, okay? And to this day, you look at a lot of websites, you look at a lot of references, they'll talk about how Remasuchus is common in you know Lake Turkana deposits in Kenya, for example. One problem, none of them is Remasuchus. In fact, they're all crocodilus. Okay. What happened was, you know, Glenn accepted previous analyses and accepted those referrals to Loidi. But when you actually include those fossils in an actual analysis and consider, for example, the morphology of the brain case in detail, as far as we can tell, Remasuchus is only known from one locality with certainty, and that's Wadi Mogra in Egypt, the 18 million year site. There's material from a slightly younger site in Libya called Jebel Zeltan that's probably Remasuchus, or if it's not, it's a close relative, okay? But otherwise, uh, it's, it's only known from those sites. It's not known from anywhere in the Rift Valley, which means the Rift Croc never occurred in the Rift. But uh, the reason I bring that up is because to this day, people will look, you know, we'll talk about the East African croc record and they'll say, we've got Remasuchus all the way up to the Pliocene. No, you never have Remasuchus at all. What you've got are earlier osteolemines in the early Miocene and then Paleo-African crocodilus after that. So, and it, it, it also complicates the records because people are looking at sometimes they're, they're excluding fossils on the theory that they might not be relevant when in fact they are. Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, I came into this, you know, fascinated by South American crocodilian history, but now I'm more interested in East African crocodilian history. There's a lot to be done there. I mean, the South American croc record is awesome, too. There are a lot of people. Right now, there are more croc systematists, both modern and people working on both modern species and fossils in South America than anywhere else in the world. They've got this incredible, incredible community of croc systematists there. You've got them in Colombia, Peru. Uh, Brazil, Argentina, other countries as well. Um, and, you know, we've got, there's now a great community in Europe too. Australia's got some brilliant people working down there. Uh, North America, yeah, I'm not the only one. Uh, but East Africa is a really fascinating place to work. And, you know, th these are the animals that ate our ancestors, okay? Yeah. Uh, and some of them, I mean, the largest known crocodilian skull is from Kenya. It's it's an it's an un, it's probably an unnamed species too, not of crocodilus of something else, but it's it's a gigantic gigantic skull, uh, you know all kinds of weird diversity right just there. I mean, Euthycodon is my favorite crocodilian. I got to say that it looks like what would have happened if Dr. Seuss had made an animal with a musical instrument coming out of its face. 
you know, it, it comes like, it looks like I crawled right out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. I mean, it's almost, it's almost psychedelically surreal, you know, but uh, I just really like Euthycodon a lot, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's an African lineage. Yeah. But, you know, outside of uh, proper, you know, crocod proper crocodilians, uh, you, have, you know, a lot of paleontological record, you have a lot of other diverse groups. Yes. Which, uh, like the aforementioned uh, Notosukins, which has crocodile forms, right? Well, and crocodilians are crocodile forms too, but yeah, they're, and, and more specifically, they're Mezuyu crocodilians. Uh, if you go back prior to around 1990, uh, most crocodilians were classified, or, or maybe 1985 when Jim Clark did his dissertation, they were classified into one of three or four broad categories. You had the Stenosukians in the Triassic and maybe early Jurassic. And then you had the Protosupians, also from the late Triassic, but maybe persisting into the early Cretaceous. Then you had the Mesosupians that first appear in the early Jurassic and then, you know, as Sabesids persist into the late Miocene. And then you had the Eusupians, which is the crowned crocodilians and their closest extinct relatives, animals with a derived palate and vertebral column. Um, we now know that Sphenosuchia, Protosuchia, and Mesosuchia are not monophyletic, but Eusuchia probably is. Uh, Crocodilia certainly is. Uh, animals like the Sabesids, the Notosuchians, would have been in the past classified as Mesosuchians. So what we now call what would what would now what would have been Mesosuchia and Eusuchia is now Mesoeucrocodilia, which includes two main subdivisions: Notosuchia. Those are the Gondwanan, primarily Gondwanan forms, and then no Neosuchia, which is primarily Laurasian, North American and Eurasian. Um, and all we have left today are Neosuchians. But uh, yeah, the, if you go back to the Cretaceous, you got forms of flippers and a ichthyosaur-like tail. You got forms that were probably less than a foot in length. You've got uh, forms that make no biological sense whatsoever. Uh, my favorite being Simosuchus uh, uh, from Madagascar. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Madagascar. That thing is about. That thing is doing everything he can to not be tube snouted. I mean, its skull is almost cubical, right? Uh, almost looks like a crocodilian armadillo, sort of. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it probably would have made a great pet too. It looks like it's almost. It almost looks like it would be yappy, you know, but uh, like a small dog. But um, in fact, that's what the name Simosuchus means. It means pug-nosed crocodilian. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some just bizarre forms down there. And even within the crown, you've got forms that make no biological sense. I mean, Purosaurus, you mentioned Purosaurus. You ever seen the Naris on that thing, the nose hole? Uh, blanking on it right now. Okay, oh, well, Purosaurus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah so, I've never seen the nose hole, no. The, the, the external Naris, which, you know, it's not quite the nostrils, but it corresponds with them, uh, is half the face. <laughs> And given that the skull, the biggest skulls are about 1.2 meters in length, you can put your head in this animal's nose and look around. Okay. Uh, no one knows why they had a nose that big. Uh, I like to joke that it was because they were inhaling their prey. You know, a capybara would come by and, and just sort of disappear, you know. But I don't know. I, I, I'm making that up. We really don't know. Then there's Morasuchus, which looks like a cross between a... Uh, uh, like a headstone and, and, a, and a crocodile. It's just this strange animal, you know, it looks like a surfboard with, with tiny teeth. Uh, 
you know, it's forms that just don't seem to make any sense at all, you know. Uh, forms with no modern parallel. We don't have animals with globular crushing teeth anymore today. Um, Chinese alligators are the closest we probably come to that. But, uh, you know, we, we have paleosuchus, but we really don't have truly hoofed forms. We, do, we don't have marine. I mean, there are crocs that can occur in marine settings. It's, I mean, we call yeah. it the saltwater crocodile for a reason, right? But we don't have anything with flippers anymore. Uh, yeah, I don't have metriorhynchids anymore. With Rinkins, we don't have diet. Well, dinosaurs didn't really have flippers, but they were highly modified for being in the marine setting, and they did persist into the Cenozoic. Uh, some analyses draw the, the the truly the Mesozoic marine forms with things like Philetosaurus and uh, Dirosaurus. Other, others don't. I kind of lean with those that don't, but uh, it's still an open question how they're related. But uh, you know, it, it's it's a uh, it's a really interesting problem. Yeah, I specifically brought, uh, brought that up because I remember uh, reading about this one small uh, crocodile form from I think it's like uh, early middle Jurassic from Tanzania, uh, the one with the uh, heterodontin dentition. I can't remember. It's like, I don't remember the name of that one either, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I just find it interesting that in, uh, put here's like in Gondwana, there were a lot of really small terrestrial crocodilians. One thing that I sometimes suspect, if you look at South American late Cretaceous faunas, I know less about the African ones, but it's, but certainly in South America, you get a lot of small, probably predatory crocodile notosuchians. You don't get sabesids until after that, but you get things like uh, pyrosaurids and baurusuchids and things like montealtosuchus, which is a really cool animal. Uh, you also get forms that may have been herbivorous, you know. They have, yeah. you know, really, you know, weird crushing dentition and nothing that would hold prey. Uh, what you don't get in those same faunas are quite as many non-avian small theropod dinosaurs. And you typically don't get any Ornithischian dinosaurs at all. Uh, you get sauropods, the big ones. And you certainly yeah. get some bloody big theropods. You know, you get abelosaurids and in slightly older deposits, you get, you know, really uh, big. You get and carcarodontosaurids, right? So you get those things. Uh, and, and well, carcarodontosaurus is African, and in South America it's Giganotosaurus. But what I sometimes wonder is if, you know, the way we perceive the age of dinosaurs based on North American and Eurasian settings, you know, most of the big land, most of the, you know, main land roles were played by dinosaurs. But in South America, some of the roles played by dromaeosaurids or you know, small ornithopods, things like that in the northern hemisphere were played by crocodiliforms in the south. Hmm. Uh, now, I, again, this is just, you know, an idea that, I've, that I'm pulling out of my nether sphincter, but it, it, it's, uh, you know, it does look that way to me, that you just don't have as many small to mid-sized dinosaurs, but you have way more crocodiliforms that were arguably not semi-aquatic. Yeah. Uh, isn't it also true that South America also had a, a lot less uh, Cretaceous mammal diversity than Northern Hemisphere? I don't know. That I don't know. Um, it could be a sampling bias, too. We just haven't found as many. Yeah. But I, I don't know is the answer to that. You'd have to ask a mammal person for that. Yeah. Well, it's the, the croc cast, so probably not going to be talking to them anytime soon. But, mm -hmm. but No, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. So, uh, let's see here. What was I going to say? Um, uh, 
blanking my question right now. That's embarrassing. Um, so with South America, you know, modern day, it probably does have the most species of crocodilians out of any continents. Now I'm thinking about it, probably does. Um, is it true that some uh, fossil deposits uh, in South America have really high, you know, crocodilian species in comparison to like the rest of the world? I think if you look at the literature, that might be true, but there's a lot of undescribed stuff. One big difference you get between the northern and southern hemispheres during the Cenozoic is that in North America and in Europe, you get multi-species units. If you look at, for example, at the Bridger Formation, you get Borealis, you get Plano, you get uh, uh, you get stuff we still call crocodilus, even though it isn't. You get Brachyuranicamps. You get Allognathosuchus. You get, I don't know if we've actually got it from the Bridger, but it would have occurred there, occurred in the time in the region, something called plant called uh, Procaminoidea. All right. The only thing we don't get are tube snouted crocs, but we did have things called champsosaurs, which are, they're archosauriforms, but they, archosauromorphs, but they don't have any close living relative. And they look kind of like gharials. Uh, then by the time you get to the late Eocene, it's just alligator or things related to alligator. And it's usually just one species in South America and in Africa and Australia. I mean, in, uh, you know, in the, the I, I was looking at stuff from the, um, from the Solomon's formation in Brazil a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and you got Porosaurus, you got Murasuchus, you've got Gripasuchus, you've got Caractosuchus, whatever the F word that is. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Acrasuchus. Okay, so you get five species right there. Maybe there's probably one or two that I'm not, I'm overlooking. In East Africa, you have five at seven million. Okay, uh, but nowadays it's much restricted. What we don't have is good information on the early Cenozoic of those areas. We have some, but not as much. So we don't know whether it was always high during the Cenozoic. I suspect it was, or whether it just got higher during the late Cenozoic. It dropped in the northern hemisphere. Uh, Something else to think about is that there's diversity within a horizon or at a locality and diversity within a region. So you probably know this, but there's a lot of work being done on the genetics of things like crocodilus and the caimans, and we're discovering a lot of cryptic species. Yeah. Okay. Now, the caimans, I have no idea how many species there are going to be within the next 10 years, but it's going to be more than we have. It's, uh, you know, it looks like paleo, both species of Paleosuchus may be divisible into as many as three. Cayman laterostris may be divisible into three. Uh, Cayman crocodilus, uh, or maybe even more than three. Cayman crocodilus and yukari, that whole complex. That looks. That just looks like something that's bound to explode into a myriad of species. That, I'm just glad that's somebody else's problem because I don't want to have to deal yeah. with that. But it's, uh, the bottom line is if you look at South American diversity, it's very high. But if you look at any given you know, drainage system or something, you might get you know, you'll get Cayman crocodilus or yukari or whatever is derived from that. You'll get either Melanosuchus or Cayman laterostris, maybe. You'll get one or two Paleosuchus, and that's it. And you don't get crocodilus until you get to the coast. So, uh, and by the time you get to the coast, you're losing a lot of the Caymans too. So, yeah. uh, you know, regionally, it's not that high. Although, I mean, I mean, locally, it's not that high, but regionally, it's going to look huge. Yeah. Okay? 
uh, I mean, it's like with Africa, you've got, you know, Osteolemus is at least three species, we think. Mechastops is now two. Crocodilus is two. Uh, but you're not going to get more than two or three of those ever co-occurring. It's not much of overlap between all those different species. Right. Yeah. They, they, I mean, it, West Africa, you can get all three, you can get at least Osteolemus, Mechastops, and Crocodilus in, a, in, a, in an area, although they don't necessarily occur in the same uh, biome. They might, you know, one will be in the larger bodies of water, another one in smaller ones, and so on. So they may even then they and may be, just hang out in a little pool in the middle of a dense jungle somewhere. Yeah, I mean they they they're they're sympatric. They occur in the same geographic region, but they're not syntopic. They don't occur in the same uh, the same spot because they have different environmental preferences or ecological preferences. Yeah, yeah. So with a uh, East African uh, crocodilian history, and this is just from what I've you know, heard talking to you so far. It seems like at first, you know, it was still heavily forested. It was, you know, larger osteolabid relative species were kind of dominant. Then as it opened up, they kind of went away and paleo African crocodilus came in. That for yeah. some reason they dwindled out and then neo African crocodilian crocodilus came back in. It's yeah. Well at seven million you've also got relatives of mechastops. Yeah. You've got you, you also got like the imagarials as well, right? And gar well, yeah, some sort of gariel, right? So you've got, you know, and, and there's another thing called croc. That's it. it, it first, it was referred to Crocodilus neloticus by Glenn Storrs. Um, I looked at it, and it's not neloticus. I referred it to something called Crocodilus. Uh, oh God, what's the species name? I'm blanking on it. Uh, it's from Lib the type material is from Libya. Crocodilus. I'd have to look it up. All of a sudden, just, it, it'll come to me after I'm done talking to you, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> I referred it to that. But then Massimo Delfino and others published a paper showing that what they have, this material from from uh, Europe, may be related to what to neotropical crocodilus. It may it's not related to Nilotocus, and it may not be related to what I had in Kenya. And so back in 21, I was able to visit uh, collections in Italy to see some of this this uh, this Libyan croc material, and Basically, I confirmed it. it or I, I, I'm not saying it's not like I have to confirm anything, but I, you know, I, I, I concur. And uh, so the East African stuff is this. Uh, the East African form is uh, Chechii. That's the species name, Crocodilus Chechii. Uh, it's not Chechii. It's probably not even Crocodilus. Hmm. But um, so you've got that lineage, and we've only got that in the late Miocene. That's one of the first to go. Okay. And it's only known from the late Miocene in Libya, too, the, the actual Chechii. But uh, we've got uh, Timistamines or Garials, whatever they are. Uh, they persist. There's scrappy material in the Pliocene. Mechastops persists, in, or Mechastopins, persist until the mid-Pleistocene. We lose them around, you know, sort of at you know sites like Kubi-4, which are those deposits. The ones that preserve them are around 1.5, 1.8 million. Uh Euthygodon persists much longer. We've got that until almost, you know, there's maybe material that's less than 100,000. Uh, and the same is true for Paleo-African crocodilus. We don't know whether Paleo-African and Neo-African crocodilus stratigraphically overlapped in the region. We just don't know. Um, I suspect not, but I, I don't know that. So uh, uh, it's a, it was a stepwise loss in diversity. It wasn't just bang, all of a sudden they're gone. 
we lose, okay, first we lose Chechi, quote unquote. It's not Chechi, but that's what I'm still calling it. And then we lose Garils. And then we lose Mechastopins. And then we lose Euthycodon plus or minus Paleo African. And then it's replacement with Neo African. Now, as it happens, both species of Neo African crocodilians do occur in the Rift Valley system. Okay. Uh, I mean, this is another more work that Yvonne Heckela did showed clearly that both species occurred in Egypt up until classical times. Yeah. It, in fact, the Egyptian people knew that there were different ones, and they selected the one that was less less aggressive for their ritualistic purpose. Yep. Yeah, yeah, smaller uh, sucus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the range of sucus seems to have been has seems to have contracted since then. It's mostly in West Africa, but there are some East African re uh, representatives. I am unaware of any place where both Melodicus and sucus co-occur. Right? Mechastops does make it to Lake Tanganyika, so it has that marginal occurrence in the region, but otherwise it's not. Osteolemus doesn't occur there. There are some records of them appearing in Uganda, but whether those are natural occurrences or whether somebody had one as a pet and let it go is completely unknown. Uh, so, I mean, right now, East Africa in particular is really depauperate compared to what it was. Yeah. And uh, we chalk that up more to, like, you know, grad gradual climatic change over, you know, past how many thousands or millions of years. Or we also say maybe humans, ancient human history might have had a role to play in that. It may have. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, you know, whether they were, you know, hunting them out or something, that we just don't know. But uh it happened i mean the, the the changes in the range happened while humans were in the region and i'm not just talking like homo erectus or something i'm talking like you know civilized people okay people who built pyramids yeah. uh they uh uh but the role that people played in that is a little unclear Certainly during that time, you also had massive desertification going on in what's now the Sahara. Sahara was a lot greener if you go back, you know, if you go further back. And there were probably a lot more crocodiles in that area. These days, not so many, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were other environmental changes that happened just in the last 10,000 years that played a role. Okay. So I, I don't know what caused that contraction, although human activity, environmental, you know, modification for agriculture or whatever it might have been. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so that brings it back to uh, Voy. Uh, how recent did uh, Voy go extinct? I'm not going to address that because they're, they're, that group in Lyon is actively working on that problem. And okay. I'd, rather, I'd rather let them tell that story. But uh, it, there is some published evidence that Nilodicus and Voy overlapped. All right. Uh, we don't know whether they co-occurred in any given wetland, but they, you know, there are, based on some published radiocarbon dates, crocodilus may, at first we, at first the, the working assumption I had and that others had was that, you know, either Voy died out and then Nilodicus replaced it or Nilodicus arrived and replaced Voy very quickly. It turns out it may not have been that simple. It turns out they may have overlapped for some, for, for some time, for, you know, some thousands yeah. of years. But, uh, it, uh, you know, there's still a lot to be done to figure that one out. I mean, boy, uh, I mean, it definitely was there when humans arrived. Okay. How quickly it died out after that, whether humans played a role in an extinction or whether Nilodicus played that role or whether it was habitat change, uh, that we just don't know. 
All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just answered my follow-up question there as well. So, um, racing back, racing around to another, you know, recently extinct crocodilian that we could actually get uh, DNA evidence from, which is uh, uh, Mika Sukas from uh, New Caledonia and Vanuatu. Yeah, that one might be. When you're talking about getting ancient DNA, it's not just a matter of time. It's also a matter of preservation. Um, I don't remember if anyone's tried to get DNA out of Boy, out of uh, uh, Mikasukas, which also was there when humans arrived. Okay, so it's a fairly recent extinction there too. And by the way, there were multiple recent extinctions in the Southwest Pacific. You had Mikasukas in... Uh, New Caledonia, you also had relatives in Vanuatu and in Fiji that died out fairly recently. Okay, I didn't and, know about Fiji. Yeah, yeah. It, I think one of them is also a different species of, of, of Mikasukas, and the other one is... I believe the other species of Mikasukas is Vanuatu, right? Yeah, and Fiji's got something else. It's, a, it's got a different name entirely. Um, but uh, we've also, there's also a fairly recently extinct species from Aldabra, Aldabra campsis. Although whether that one was ever seen by humans is, is unclear to me. Uh, at first, we just had it bouncing all over the crocodilids. More recent work that I've done shows that it's probably an osteolemine, or at least it, it's, it's, it tends to cluster with them. It's certainly not crocodilus in the modern sense. Um, and that yeah. one was a small one too, it, you know, and it had little modest little horns. Uh, but uh, that's another fairly recently extinct species. And... There was uh, there was apparently a miniature gharial in the Solomon Islands that may or may not have persisted until historical times. Uh, huh. It was called Gavialis dixoni, not not dixoni, um, papuensis, Gavialis papuensis. Whether it's Gavialis and that's unclear. It's really it's no the material we have is really scrappy, but uh, it seems to have been a miniature one because if you look at the vertebrae, they're all you know the sutures are all closed up between the neural arch and the centrum, and this thing was. You know, two meters would be a big one. Okay, so uh, and that's from uh, Morua Island, I think is the, is the current name. It used to be called Woodlark Island. Um, but you know, so there's a lot of these island populations. The Seychelles is another one where you know we might have had island endemics that are now extinct. Uh, It'd be nice to know more if we can get some DNA out of some of the others. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Mikasukas or, you know, Quincana or the other Mikasukids. I've, uh, seen, I've seen them, but I'm not, you know, I haven't devoted a lot of time to them because I'm not in Australia, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, I'm guessing you probably know more than me. Just, But uh, you want to talk about them at all? Well, I can I can talk about them just based on what I've read. Uh, last time I saw any of the Australian material was like in 1998 when I was actually in Australia, uh, and a lot has come to light since then. You know, new species, this thing called Calthafrons, and 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 some others. Uh, there's a guy there by the name of Jorgo uh, uh, Rostevsky who's doing some really great work out there, and they've got what may be a Timistamine. His analysis shows it to be that. Uh, they've got. And Quincana seems to be a fairly recent member of the group. I mean, it's the stuff in the Miocene that might be Quincana, but most of it's known from the Pleistocene. But if you go back to the early Eocene, you have an animal called uh, Cambara, which looks basically like a standard crocodile, just in its overall comportment. Um, and then later in time, you get 
something called Trilophosuchus, which probably would have resembled Osteolemus in some ways. We don't have the snout, but we do have the back of the skull. Uh, we have, uh, you know, things like, well, I think Baru may have been sunk, but we have, or no, it's, it's a Palomnarchus that got sunk, but we have, you know, others that are just basic generalized crocodiles, okay? And others that have very weird broad snouts, uh, similar to Kinyang in some ways, actually. But, uh, and they all disappeared during the, the last of them disappeared during the Pleistocene. We had uh, Quincana, and then we also had, um, in Australia, I'm talking here in Australian mainland, we also had something that used to be called Palomnarchus. I've forgotten what its current name is right now, but um, Polluterex, it's Polluterex. Um, and so those disappeared and we get crocodilus. And that's similar to what we see going on in Africa too. You've got these, these sort of you know, endemic radiations and they've either dwindled in diversity or disappeared entirely to be replaced by crocodilus. Okay. Um, the timing of replacement is very different, but you know, that's what we see happening. Okay. Sort of like the Vikings of the reptile world. They just sort of show up and take over. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, now I'm going forever refer to uh crocodilus as the Norman Knights. Uh, so yeah just to talk to you it seems like up until relatively recently crocodilians were all really a lot more diverse than what we have today so yeah 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 so i mean go ahead i mean it's it's and again i think that ultimately is what drew me to the group to study is just this underappreciated diversity uh, you know, I, I always, I, I teach a couple of undergraduate courses and I always ask them, ask my students, you know, so how many of you've heard that crocodilians are living fossils? And most of them will raise their hands and I'll have to explain, well, let me tell you the reality. And uh, one thing that's, one thing that's also become clear, it was always assumed, a German paleontologist by the name of Friedrich von Hönne in the early 20th century diagrammed it as what he called the fertile stem, the, the fertile stem or the fertile stalk, um, where the ancestral crocodile, what we would now call crocodiliform or crocodilomorph, would have maybe looked maybe like a longer legged version of a modern crocodile, semi-aquatic ambush predator, okay? And from that, every now and then something unusual would arise, like a marine, like a metriorhynchid with flippers or some of these notosuchians that were more or at least less semi-aquatic, okay? Uh, or you might get a little box head like Osteolemus, but always from a generalized ancestor. By generalized, I mean something that looks like a modern alligator or crocodilus, you know, with a you know, relatively yeah. long snout, conical teeth, you know, like to pretend it's a log until it gets close enough to grab something. Um, and that's not true either, okay? Because if you look at the last common ancestor of crocodilus and alligator, it probably looked like neither one. It was probably much smaller. It might have been uh, specialized for durophagy. It may have had crushing teeth in the back. Uh, and in fact, if you look at all of the closest relatives to 
crown group crocodilus, a lot of them look like early alligators. You know, they're small, they're short snouted, you know, durophate, you know, big crushing teeth in the back, which may be exp helping explain part of the disparity we're getting between molecular and morphological data. It may be a rooting problem. And this is, I, I can tell you exactly which pinhead made those mistakes in the 90s that led to this problem, okay? Because back then we didn't have too many outgroups to use for our analyses. And the ones we, some of the ones we had, I didn't use because they looked too much like an alligator, which in my mind meant they were too, they were too specialized. They were too derived to reflect ancestral conditions. And that's because I, in spite of my wisdom and knowing crocs aren't living fossils, still assume that their last common ancestor looked like a gator or a croc, a modern one, not a fossil one. Yeah. Well, since then, we found new material from all over Europe. Uh, so some other important material now from Australia and South America, this thing, you know, these things called the Susi Sukids. Uh, we've got, you know, Allodaposuchus used to be just, you know, just fragments. Now we've got complete skulls of different, of a variety of species of Allodaposuchid. We've got new Iliacampsids. Uh, and they all look a little bit like an early gator which means a lot of the characters that we've been using to diagnose alligatoroidea and alligatoridae and things like that may actually be more broadly plesiomorphic and we're dealing with a rooting problem, at least in part. Uh, that's not going to explain all of it, but it might help explain some of it. But, uh, you know, just how much we've learned about that. But the last common ancestor of crocodilus and alligator probably didn't look like either one of them, which means that, you know, I mean, there was, a, there was something called Cope's Rule. Uh, and I'm not talking about his body size pattern. I'm talking about, he argued that generalists can evolve to become more specialized, but specialists can't evolve to become more generalized because specialization is sort of a one-way street, he argued. And I think for the most part, that's probably true. But crocodilia is full of examples arguing against that. Hmm. The modern American alligator is, I mean, what I think happened, if you look at the earliest form, if you look at the earliest alligatorines in Western, and by alligator, anything, anything closer to alligator than decaying, that's what an alligatorine is, okay? If you look at the earliest alligatorines, uh, they're maybe one or two meters at most. They have globular back teeth, most of them. They have really short snouts. In some cases, they're also very deep. Uh, and they were arguably probably specialized for something, probably durophagy, eating hard-shelled prey. Uh, but then starting in the, uh, what happens is you lose most croc diversity between the, between the middle and late Eocene, right? And that means all of the generalized crocs you had back then, forms like uh, Brachyuranicampsa and Borealisuchus and other things like that, they're, they're gone. And so the only things left were relatives of alligator. And if you look at the ones we get in the, starting in the Uinton, they have slightly longer snouts, slightly flatter snouts. They're getting a little bigger. And then we get alligator prenasalis in the early, in the late Eocene. Some sources say early Oligocene. It did persist into that, but the oldest stuff is actually late Eocene. Um, again, bigger. The teeth weren't quite so, some of the specializations for durophagy, like a you know shelf projecting into the oral cavity on the lower jaw and reinforced palate are a little less apparent, a little less evident. And then, you know, through the, through the Oligocene and into the Miocene, with a couple of exceptions, we see them just get bigger, longer snouted, uh, until we get to alligator mississippiensis, which I think is a secondarily generalized semi-aquatic ambush predator that came from a more specialized durophagus ancestor. Huh. Interesting. 
Similar thing happened in Europe too, because there the you, know, you lose all the diversity except for diplocyanidon, which was already looked a little bit like kind of like a like a mid-sized alligator. But once all the other crocs disappeared, they begin to get bigger. They begin to have slightly longer snouts, more acute. Uh, they start, to, and they also, by the way, start developing a more crocodile-like occlusal pattern where the teeth are doing this rather than an overbite. Um, alligators don't lose that for whatever reason. But um, so we get the same paint pattern there. You know, we lose a lot of diversity, and so the one remaining lineage begins to fill the generalized role that was left vacant by the bigger ones. Hmm. So uh, in northern northern hemisphere, this you know, wrap this drop in diversity that led to these you know generalists. This was, I'm um, guessing, after the Eocene thermal maximum? Oh, well after that, yeah. The, 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 this okay, this so happened way after that. The Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum was actually sort of early Eocene. Crop okay. diversity remains high all the way into, if you look at the, uh, uh, I tend to think of it in terms of North American land mammal ages, but you know that happened around 55. The big drop in diversity is between 40 and 45. So, you know, okay, you so Quite yeah, a bit of time so after that. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't related to that. It was it was related to a major change in it was it does correlate with a major change in croc in uh, global thermal proxies, temperature proxies. But I mean, given that just before that happened, we still had alligatorines on like Banks Island in the Canadian Arctic and in Ellesmere Island. Uh, and they persisted in places like South Dakota and uh, Nebraska into the Miocene. We also, by the way, have them in California up through the Miocene. Um, yeah, there were gators in California and there were hoofed crocs in California and tamistamines, uh, although those were ES, although those were much older. Uh, it was, again, probably more a matter of aridity and rainfall and wetland area that played, played that major role, not temperature. And I'm not the first one to come up with that too. There was a paper by uh, um, Andre Sort, uh, 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 Solorzano, I think is the last name. I forget the actual pronunciation. He was a, a student in Spain who, you know, really first published the insight that although the, you know, global patterns are related to temperature, regional variation is more likely related to something else. And that what we're seeing is not the earth just get too cold for crocs generally. We just sort of see that range of thermal tolerance contract. And that's what's helping drive some of that diversity change. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So, yeah, I mean, I've never gone out into Kansas and thought to myself, this looks like alligator habitat. So it was. There's alligators. Actually, there's alligators from uh, Missouri as late as the Pleistocene. Huh. A couple of osteoderms in the collections at the Field Museum. Hmm. And those were those were near, like, I think they may have been near Hannibal, Missouri, too. So we're not talking like all the way down almost in Arkansas. We're, it would gators occur in Arkansas today. We're talking, you know. Uh, more like towards Illinois or Iowa. It would have been more toward it and more more downstate Illinois, not 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 as far north as Iowa. But okay. uh, although we do get them in downstate Illinois, those are the ones that swam up the Mississippi and turn right. Eventually, we'll find the ones that swim up the Mississippi and turn to left. Um, this would have been during some of the interglacial periods during the Pleistocene, when you know, not when the polar caps receded greatly. Yeah. Uh, possible they did occur, but haven't found them yet. So, uh, also, you know, American alligators probably one of my favorite species of crocodilians. So, you, uh, you want to talk about kind of their paleontological history a little bit? Alligator? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, 
our decision to add a genus name to anything is always arbitrary. So um, the oldest fossils that are currently referred to alligator is an animal called alligator prenasalis, and it's from uh, the late Eocene into the early Oligocene of uh, mostly of, of South Dakota, um, the Badlands area. Although you can also get it in, it's also been found in, in uh, nearby Nebraska, and there's material from Saskatchewan that's probably referable to the same thing. Um, most alligators we get after that are part of that increase, you know, that, that trend toward larger and less specialized. So you get forms like alligator Thompsoni, you get alligator Mephrodi, uh, is a newly named species called alligator hylensis. I'm not sure how widely that's accepted, but it's been named. Uh, there is material from, uh, it, most of the material we have until fairly late is in the Midwest, actually. It's from uh, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska. Uh, there's material from Oklahoma. Uh, but, and the California stuff may or may not be alligator, actually. We just don't know. Uh, we do get it in Florida, also in Tennessee, in, uh, uh, in the Miocene as well. Now, there's one exception to the generally just getting bigger trend, and that's an animal called alligator magruai. Um, it's known from Nebraska, although there's material from Florida that's either the same thing or closely related. That it was just recently published. Uh, and that one went the other direction. That one became small again. It didn't quite develop globular teeth. Okay. Uh, the original material is at the collections at the Field Museum, although the American Museum has a lot of it too. Um, and I'm talking like, you know, the skull is maybe like this. Okay, it was a really small animal. Um, and that's sort of the exception to the rule because that's, you know, early in the Miocene, it looks like, temp you know, there's a, there a period in the Miocene called the Miocene Climatic Optimum, which, you know, temperatures were starting to go down starting in the late Eocene, and they really crashed at the beginning of the Oligocene. But then they kind of went up again in the early Miocene and then began to, to drop again. And so during that early Miocene th thermal maximum or climatic optimum, we did start getting that second species in the uh, western interior. We got alligator magruai. Uh, and when I say there's only one species, I'm talking about in you know I'm talking about continental deposits. We have, of course had things like theca camps uh, in the coastal regions, but uh, yeah. it was uh, in the interior. It was basically just one species per unit. I don't know if magruai is found with other species of alligator. I'd have to look at my notes, frankly. I've forgotten. It's been really a long time since I've thought about that one. But uh, so that's basically the history of alligator. It seems to be an example of a specialized animal losing its specializations to fill a much broader ecological role, which is what we have today. Uh, alligator will, you know, and there are lots of accounts of alligator occurring offshore, not very far offshore, but offshore. But in most, but in Florida, South Florida, by the time you start getting into brackish water, you lose alligator and pick up alligator, pick up crocodilus acutus, the American crocodile. Yeah. Something else to bear in mind if you think about the history of these things is that words like alligator and crocodile and caiman tended to get interchanged a lot, regardless of what they were actually looking at. So, for example, the Cayman Islands appear to be named for a crocodilian, but it was never a caiman. What we had there was actually a population, an extinct population of Crocodilus rama for the Cuban crocodile occurred there. Okay. Also, also occurred in the Bahamas too. Um, 
likewise, there's a body of water. There's a there's a river in Australia called the East Alligator River. Yeah, I've heard of that. It's all crocodiles, right? So, you know, these names just got used interchangeably. Some people would talk about the American crocodile, and they're referring to the Mississippiensis, right? Uh, but in Florida, you do get the American crocodile, and that seems to be a very recent phenomenon. There's no fossil record of it anywhere in Florida. Uh, and it probably just, you know, we don't know whether it, it's, you know, part of the, there's multiple genetic populations within acutus. There's one in the West Indies. There's one in Mesoamerica. There's one in the uh, uh, Pacific coast of Colombia and Ecuador. Uh, we don't really know exactly where the where the American crocodile in Florida comes, comes from. It's probably a mixture, frankly. People have looked at the genetics, and it's an ongoing issue. Uh, yeah, all the way back in my second episode, I had uh, Paul Bonnard on, and he was talking who, about who? Uh, who? Uh, Paul Bodnar. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He was talking about uh, you know, how like I think it may like the '60s or '70s, they introduced a Jamaican population of American crocs to South Florida. Yeah. So there's like, so now there's like a hodgepodge of different genetic lines in South Florida. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the some of the West Indian forms, mitochondrial based on the mitochondrial DNA, appear to be Cuban crocodile. Actually, uh, yeah, I think I remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're dead ringers for regular old acutus, but uh, you know it, it's and, and one other thing about crocodilus is these things will hybridize with gay abandon. They they uh, someone once showed me a skull that just confused the hell out of me. It was I picked it up, and if you if you when you work on crocodilus long enough, it's dead easy to tell whether you got something that's neotropical, whether you got something that's Indo-Pacific. Okay, into Pacific forms, you've got these crests that come down away from the orbits, down onto the, the top of the skull. Okay, oh, they like, kind of like uh, the crest you see on, like, say, salties, where they kind of like run from the eye door towards the yeah. nose. They all do that. I mean, with, with Johnston eye, it's a little less apparent, uh, but if you look at a young one, they're there. Uh, but if you look at if you look at Palustris, Siamensis, Nova Guinea, they all have those. Okay, Mindarensis. Um, Neo-African, neotropical crocodilus has a boss right in the middle of the snout. Yeah, yeah, not like as obvious in like acutus, right? Not as obvious in intermediate, but again, there it is still there. You just have to, you know, if you look carefully enough, you will see it. Uh, this thing had upturned. First of all, it had upturned squamosals. Now, if that's crocodilus, it's either going to be siamensis, rhombifer, or a really, really big neoloticus or porosis. Okay, they they, yeah. they just get those two at big sizes. Smaller ones, not so much. But this thing had really prominent crests, and the skull was only like that. So, okay, I'm like, okay, it's either going to be acute, it's either going to be rhombifer or siamensis. It had the crests coming down there, and the snout was kind of flat. So I thought, okay, siamensis, but then it also had that hump. Hmm. And it turns out, when Vietnam, after the Vietnam War, when Vietnam was trying to get its economy back going. They tried. They wanted to get you know start some crocodile farms for the for the exotic leather trade. Yeah, and they do have a native population there. They have Siamese crocs, but they were really you know their population had really gone down. So they went to the only other communist country in the world with a native population of crocodiles <laughs> for breeding stock. And so this thing is literally a Siamensis. Ramba for hybrid, and those are lineages that have been separate for like at least ten million years, probably more. But they'll still reproduce, and they'll still 
hurt his offspring. I mean, it, it's, I, I once saw what's called a mixed gerado. Uh, it's a cross between acutus and rhombifer. Acutus and moralitae are breeding or interbreed all the time in the wild. Uh, yeah, I was uh, talking with. Yeah, porosis yes, uh, and are the same way, you know. Yeah. I mean, I always thought like American and Crocs in particular kind of uh, notorious for hybridizing with anything and everything. So. Yeah, I mean, in most croc you know, most species of crocodilus will do that. There's less evidence for caimans, but there is some, and I, I know there's work being done in that. And apparently, there's a lot of hybridization going on in caimans too. Uh, not so much like between Paleosuchus and Melanosuchus, but you know, between different forms of crocodilus, that kind of stuff, they will hybridize. Uh, yeah, I was going to say if Paleosuchus and Melanosuchus met up, it probably wouldn't be to breed; it'd probably be to eat. So. Yeah, I mean, if uh, the. Uh, or it just happens naturally. I mean, it, it, if you want to follow the biological species concept strictly, you know, you know, population, you know, it's a population that can't produce fertile offspring with another population. If you follow that rigidly, there's really only one species of crocodilus in the whole world. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, and I, I, which is why I don't necessarily buy that argument. Okay. It's a uh, yeah. species, biological species concept might tell us how a species comes into being, but it doesn't really tell us what a species is. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, crocodiles, they'll interbreed all the time. And, uh, and by the way, the story the guy told me that about Cuba and Vietnam swapping crocs may be apocryphal, but that's what I was told. And I choose to believe it because it's a really cool story. And it's uh, called matched up. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's the thing with crocodiles. Man, I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine what a Simensis romper for hybrid would look like. That. Well, I don't have to imagine it. I've seen it, but it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's like a, you know, living animal, but yeah. most croc hybrids tend not to look like 50% one, 50% the other. They tend to look way more like one. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, the moral acutus hybrids just look like moral But, uh, the, uh, the one I saw, it basically looked like Siamensis. It just had that hump on it. That's what confused me. Yeah, Rhombus has a somewhat deeper snout and it's a little narrower than it's name. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned I've seen pictures of us. One guy who has a Nilodicus romperfer hybrid and it does look a lot more like Nilodicus than it does romperfer. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 standard. I mean, the re part of the reason we have what you know what we with the suspicion I have, and I think others have it too, that all these acutists from the West Indies from the Greater Antilles have are mitochondrially like rhombifer is that it was a hybridization event with a female rhombifer okay the member the mitochondria are yeah. inherited that also made it difficult to work out crocodilus relationships based on mitochondrial dna especially when people were relying on specimens from zoos because okay. you know a lot of hybridization there especially before people understood that these things might be different species you know that kind of thing osteolemus i know there's a lot of hybrids of zoos of those um, yeah, yeah. Before they recognize the right. separation. So, so yeah, these things are all you know they're 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 you know you get all these hybrids, and that might be overprinting species phylogeny to a certain extent. Nowadays, we use a lot more nuclear DNA, which gets around that problem, right? But uh, most of the early a lot of the early a lot of the early sequence-based analyses, as opposed to distance-based, uh, relied on mitochondrial DNA, which they focused on that a lot because it also avoided so-called gene, gene tree species tree problems and they were just they were shorter sequences and easier to handle 
at the time. Nowadays, we have better techniques to use nuclear DNA, and that's you know probably more reliable. But uh, nevertheless, that's you know that that was a complicating factor. You know, yeah. How many of these things were species, and how many of them were hybrids? Yeah. So, uh, you know, with uh, crocodilus, um, I've I've read that uh, the all neotropical ones are just descended from East African uh, Nilotichus. I don't know how true that is. Well, um, whether it's, we don't know that it's descended from Nilotichus so much as that Nilotichus and the neotropical ones share a common ancestor. Um, and the neotropical crocodilus, that is a monophyletic group. No one questions that, okay? Yeah. Uh, whether neo-African crocodilus is monophyletic is, is an open question. I, you know, given the, given the strength of the data that Avon's put toward it, I suspect no. But, uh, uh, the question, the, the next questions though are how old are these lineages and when did the dispersal events take place? And that right now is a lot harder to answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, there are people who do molecular dates. There was a paper that we did, I was a co-author on it, the paper in fact that did the ancient DNA for Voy. Um, the problem is that the, 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 calib the tip calibrations they use for their tip dating analysis, a lot of them were just wrong. And I mean, just mm -hmm. Like 200 off i mean way off uh which means those dates are probably not all that reliable and but right now a bunch of us are currently working to, to correct that to fix that get better estimates but uh you know they there's also this perception again that they're living fossils which means they evolve slowly and i'm not sure that's true one thing I can tell you is that the molecular divergence estimates for the two species of Mechastops, Cataphractus and Leptorhynchus, they were putting that around 7 million or something uh, for the two living species. But we actually have relatives of Mechastops from 7 million, and they look nothing like it. They look way more generalized. And you can actually line up the fossils in East Africa from the one we have at Lothigan to the one we have at Canapoi to the one we have at uh omo and and kubifora which are two different units yeah, and those that varies in age by about half a million years um and then the modern ones you can almost line up and just watch the snout get narrow and attenuate you know it's just you know which is completely inconsistent with those molecular dates uh now is it possible to fossil that i'm just dealing with an incomplete fossil record yeah but i think it's also possible that those dates are overestimates because i mean they just i can't imagine them evolving that slowly Right. So, uh, and again, I, I have issues with molecular dates in general. I, I just always have. I'm not saying they should be ignored, but they, they, you know, there are weaknesses that have to be borne in mind that aren't always. Yeah. And I mean, evolution doesn't always occur at the same steady pace. Sometimes it. Well, people don't use molecular right. clocks per se anymore. The idea of a molecular clock where it's a constant rate of evolution, people don't do that anymore, really. They, they, they know that you've got, you know, variation in rate over time within a lineage you've got variation in rate between lineages you've got variation in rate between genes you've got variation within genes within codon positions third codon positions in particular are very fast uh, we know that okay so that's that's you know the methods we have today don't assume a constant clock uh, and they can account for a lot of variability. In fact, the reason the molecular models we have these days are so complicated is because we keep finding new ways that they vary over time, right? Uh, so I'm not sure that's really the issue. It's more uh, you know, other input parameters. I mean, have we got the right 
estimate for these rates? Do we have the right estimate for, do we have the right calibrations? Okay, tip calibrations work different from node calibrations, but how accurate are those? Uh, and you know what? And those have I, I, I published papers on that, showing that. And I was granted I was working with mitochondrial DNA mostly. Uh, I didn't do the sequences; I downloaded them. But using one particular method, uh, that some molecular divergence estimates, if you include their error bars, absolutely exclude other divergence estimates for the very same node. Based entirely on the caliber, based entirely on the on the on the tax they used to calibrate. Huh. I mean, they can be that variable. So, you know, I do tend to be a skeptic when it comes to those dates. But, you know, the, I think they are getting better and certainly getting more robust. And they and uh, I do think tip calibration, where you know, in the past, what you would do is you would, fossils never calibrated anything. Nodes did. So you would say, well, what's the calibration? You know, they would say, for example, let's use the mammal bird calibration. What that meant is the last common ancestor of mammals and birds. In other words, the root of amniota. Uh, the problem is that's, a, that, you know, first appearances in the fossil record underestimate true origination dates. We've known this since forever, okay? Uh, and how much off are they, right? So it was the node that was calibrating the rates of evolution, not the fossil itself. The fossil was calibrating the node. Uh, these days, they use with tip calibrating. You're not talking about you know using the fossil itself, not as a minimum divergence point here, but sort of as a maximum appearance date there, and then you estimate down from that. And it, I think that is a I think that is a more rational and, and more reasonable approach. But you still have to be accurate with those tip calibrations. Really yeah. Clear. So, so like basically, in this terms, instead of going from root to branch, you go from branch to root. Kinda, yeah. That's sort of how it's supposed to do. And you can use, uh, you can use way more calibration points now because you know in the past some nodes would be, you know, I would say would be reliable calibration points. Others would not. I would never use the last common ancestor of all species of crocodilus to calibrate anything. Uh, but alligator versus caiman, alligator versus crocodilus, yeah, I'd use those. Uh, as for but with tip calibrations, you don't have to assume that these are minimum divergence times at all. So you can use as many as you want. And that, that also kind of strengthens the method, I think. Yeah. So uh, with all that, uh, what we say is probably the origin point of the uh, dispersal point of the uh, Nautilus and the neotropical uh, rocks. We say it's maybe like the Mediterranean area or? Could be. Uh, I mean, if, if, uh, if, this if this Libyan form Crocodilus chechi really is part of the uh, neotropical radiation, and I I think it very well might be. Uh, it actually has the hump, for example. Uh, then probably North Africa, or maybe you know, possibly Southern Europe. Although there's really no evidence for that, but uh, my guess would be that the dispersal went from Africa to the New World, not the other way around. Yeah, uh, but I don't know that for sure. So right. it's probably going to be Africa somewhere, or potentially some area near Africa, Arabian Peninsula, Southern Europe, something like that. But it was, uh, it was certainly going to be from the dispersal went from east to west. I'm pretty sure of that. All right. Well, like I ask about um, kind of the rock star of the uh, alligatoroid. 
family, the Dinosuchus. Oh, yeah. Is that, is that a, I don't, have you worked with the Dinosuchus at all? I did, but more importantly, my student, Adam Cassette, Dr. Adam Cassette, who's now at, uh, uh, he's now in Arkansas teaching human anatomy, um, but he also is continuing his research. He redescribed that for his dissertation. Okay. And so, so the question I want to ask is, is Dinosuchus an alligator roid or alligator rein? Alligator roid. It's not an alligator rid. Alligator rid would be the last common, it was based on the last common ancestor of alligator and caiman. Alligatorine is anything closer to alligator, including alligator. Caimanine would be anything closer to caiman. And alligatoroid would be anything closer to alligator than to crocodilus or gavialis. Okay. okay. Um, which means you can be an allig you can if you're an alligatorid, you're going to be an alligatoroid. But if you're an alligatoroid, you don't have to be an alligatorid. Okay. So things like diplosinodon, lidiosuchus, dinosuchus, these are alligator uh, these are alligatoroids. All right. So is a uh, dinosuchus more closely to, related to uh, alligators than it is to caimans, or? No, no, it's equally related to both. Okay, so it's before, like, kind of before that branch off, then, or? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an early branching di uh, alligatoroid. Okay, so uh, when do uh, caiman and alligators branch off from each other? That depends on how you resolve some of these uh, late Cretaceous fossils. Um, I always kind of assumed it was at or near the KPG boundary. Uh, because we get the earliest alligatorine, unambiguous alligatorine is something called uh, uh, Navajo Sucus Mukai, which is of early Paleocene age. The oldest caimans we had at that time were of early to middle Paleocene age. That's still true, although we've got more of them now in South America. Um, the problem is you've got forms like Brachycampsa and Botosaurus. Brachycampsa first appears in the, in the late Cretaceous, but not at the very end. It appears around 80 million between 78 and 80 million. Uh, and some analyses draw those as caimanines, right? including some of mine. It, I suspect when we find more of these fossils, we'll figure out that a lot, that what's really happening is a lot of the characters that diagnose caimans are actually, again, they, they have a broader distribution. I think that's what's gonna happen, but I can't demonstrate that. But if those things are if those things are caimanines, and that split goes back to like the Campanian, that's closer to eighty million. Uh, hmm. But without those, it's close to sixty five million. Okay, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty deep split. Yeah, on um, and uh, what traits do you look at to derive what is a caiman and what is an alligator? Well, um, for example, caimans typically have a really big supraoccipital bone on, exposed on the skull table. They typically have constricted uh, supertemporal fenestrae. In Paleosuchus, they close off entirely. Um, they have, um, there's some aspects in the back of the, of the brain case that are typically caimanine. Uh, sort of aspects of the kawana, the back end of the nasal passages are very typical to that. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe them without actually having a caiman with me, and I don't. Uh, alligatorines have some interesting sutural patterns on the top of the skull. The prefrontal, for example, extends further forward than the derived ones, than the lacrimal. Early ones, that's not true. Uh, but, you know, they have things like that. There's other changes, other differences in the number of osteoderms in the back. There's, um, you know, changes like that, too. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's actually a lot more easy to, to diagnose a caiman than it is to delegate, diagnose an alligator. Because caimanines are so distinctive. They have so many things that, that are just theirs and theirs alone. So. All right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, going back to Dinosuchus, uh, 
want to talk about just the general characteristics of Dinosuchus at all? Yeah, it, it's a really strange animal. Um, if you look at older textbooks, they'll show you know, a group of people like Barnum Brown and others taking notes around what looks like a giant, a gigantic crocodile skull, and then there's a little crocodile skull in front of it. That skull they were working on is described by one of my great mentors, Juan Langston, as a figment of the imagination. Uh, they had little bits of the snout, they had parts of the lower jaw, and that was it. And they just assumed since it didn't, since it appeared to have a notch between the maxilla and premaxilla, that it must be a crocodile, not an alligator. Uh, and so they just took a, a Cuban crocodile skull and scaled it up. Okay. Uh, it turns out it didn't look anything like that. And this is based mostly on Adam's work. It had a much flatter snout. Uh, the external nares, the nose hole, was also big, but it wasn't elongate like in Porosaurus. It was more like that. It was much more spread out like this. Um, it, it was just, it, 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 uh, it didn't have cranial proportions with any modern analog at all. Um, another question about it, I always ask is size. Uh, as far as I can tell, if you take all the biggest crocodilians we know of, if you look at Purosaurus, if you look at uh, Dinosuchus, if you look at uh, some of the really big gharials like Gryposuchus croizati, uh, Euthycodon was another really, some of those got really big. And if you look at outside of the crown, if you look at things like Sarcosuchus, yeah. super largest crocodilians, actually neither. But, uh, if you, uh, but if you look at all of them, they're, statistically, they're about the same size. 30 to 35 feet, you know, which would be what, uh, 10 meters, something like that. Uh, I still think in feet more than centimeters and meters, but uh, it's, uh, that's, they're probably statistically the same size. You know, we don't have large numbers of any of them really. And most of it's not very complete. Um, the largest known skull of any crocodilian ever found is a big skull of Euthycodon actually from Kenya. Uh, but because the snout was so much bigger than the rest of the skull in that one compared to other crocs, I'm not sure we could use modern, we could use scaling patterns or allometry curves for modern crocs to guess its size. So it was probably not, it was probably not much bigger than Porosaurus. Skull on a big one there is somewhat shorter, but it was also more massive. Uh, Dinosuchus, probably the same size as the others. They were all, you know, 10 meters about. One of them may have been bigger on average, but we're not going to know that, at least not now. Yeah. Uh, so what can we tell about the paleoecology of uh, Dinosuchus? It was semi-aquatic, like other, most other crocs. The snout shape is consistent with that anyway. Uh, like any other croc, it ate whatever it could swallow, right? Which, given its size, would have been, it would have included some dinosaurs, probably, and not just the avian type. Uh, probably ate a lot of turtles, a lot of fish. I mean, very few crocs have a specialized diet. They'll eat, if, if it's organic and can be made to fit down the throat, then it's food. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, so it probably ate whatever it wanted, as far as we can tell. Uh, it appears to have been found in freshwater settings. A lot of people think of it as a late, as, you know, something that happened at the end of the age of dinosaurs. Actually, no, it disappeared long before that. It's known only from the Campanian, which would be like 72 to 80 million years, something like that. I forget the exact boundary dates. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a terminal Cretaceous animal. Uh, it's known only from North America. There appear to have been at least two species, maybe more. 
this is something that, that Adam finally figured out because, you know, the type material is from Montana. It's called Dinosuchus hatcheri. And then they named something called Phobosuchus rio grandensis from West Texas. And then there's other Dinosuchus from southeastern North America that David Schwimmer worked on, did a lot of good work on that. Uh, Schwimmer was arguing that we should go with an with the species named Rugosus because it was named before the others, the species name. Uh, problem is Rugosus is based on a tooth, and that tooth was reworked into Miocene deposits. So it's really not a suitable holotype in my in my view, and not in Adam's view either, especially since we now know that we can consistently distinguish the Texas and South America southeastern forms. They're different species now. So now we've got Dinosuchus rio grandensis on, on one side of the Western Interior Seaway and Dinosuchus schwimmeri on the other. Uh, the problem is hatcheri. Uh, it's the type species, but it's it's unclear whether we can tell whether it's the same as Rio Grandensis, the same as Schwimmeri, or something else entirely. Uh, right now, we're petitioning to have uh, the type species transferred from from Hatcheri to Rio Grandensis, uh, which would stabilize things. Otherwise, we would have to sink the name Dinosuchus. And uh, believe me, I already sank Pristacampsis and got enough grief for that. I'm not going to have that happen to, to, to Adam. So we're trying to stabilize and keep the name. Yeah. So during the campaign, I can't remember, is that before or after the Western Interior Seaway started to close up? Uh, that was, it was, it was, well, I, I, it might have been starting to close up, but it wasn't closed. It was still, you know, it was still there. It still bisected North America at the time. Yeah. So from the Arctic to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see here. So, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, I'm, what, what do you want? What, what else do you want to know? I mean, I can talk about pretty much any aspect of crocodilian evolution. That's what I do. Uh, I'm less familiar with things like physiology or uh, uh, things like that. Uh, other aspects of what we're doing in East Africa. It turns out that the bite marks left by crocodilians happen to resemble the marks left by primitive stone tools a whole lot. Hmm. And as a result, that means it's now maybe a little harder to distinguish, you know, if you pick up a bone that's got these what look like cut marks on them, or were they made by early human tools, or were they made by a crocodile? And, uh, you know, that's come up because some of the oldest alleged evidence for tool use isn't tools, it's tool marks on bones. Now, there's a couple of groups out there that are working on that. There's uh, Stephanie Drumheller, who's also my former student, Dr. Stephanie Drumheller, she's at Tennessee. And there's another group in Spain that's working actively on the project too, using all you know, other techniques to see if we can better distinguish them. Uh, but I mean, Stephanie developed something that I call phylogenetic taphonomy. What she did was look at the frequencies of different types of bite marks left by different crocodilians. You mapped it on a tree, and from that you can predict what an ex what kind of marks a particular extinct crocodile might have made based on its modern relatives. And so we're trying to apply that in East Africa too. Okay, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So crocodilians might actually interfere with our knowledge of the Stone Age then. It might, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I mean, it. If you look at most studies of, of, of vertebrate paleontology in East in Africa, okay, whether it's East Africa or South Africa or anywhere else, most of the emphasis was. I mean, certainly was on primates for obvious reasons, 
but a lot of it also was was focused on animals that might tell it that were thought to tell us something about environment or about time you know they might have been evolving rapidly enough that you can tell time based on the fossils uh rodents pigs things like that um crocodiles were thought to indicate only that it was warm and wet which everyone already knew uh, turns out they may be telling us more about more detailed like was it also forested okay um were the crocodiles here the type that would leave bite marks resembling tool marks uh, you know there's a lot more to be you know crocodiles tell us more about these systems than we originally thought uh, and I, it's been kind of cool to just be involved in that just to see how see these revelations come to come into being and you know what role did these animals play in the appearance in the origin of other crocodilian lineages elsewhere in the world neo neotropical crocodilus for example so yeah yeah lots yeah. of so this is probably more of a bit of a guess philosophical question or anything sure. but uh uh what do you think is the uh, future evolutionary course for modern crocodilians? That's a good question. Um, and it depends on the crocodilian. Uh, we're probably going to see, well, we're probably going to see diversity both go up and then go down again. Because on the one hand, we're starting to split some of these species. But on the other hand, we're also, you know, some of them are gravely endangered. You know, it's the Philippine crocodile, almost extinct. Uh, Indian gharial is in very bad shape population-wise. Chinese alligator is almost extinct in the wild. Fortunately, they breed in captivity, so they won't necessarily completely die out. Uh, we don't even know. I mean, as for the caimans, I mean, we don't even know what their ranges are yet. So in terms of diversity, we're probably going to see a short-term increase followed by a more long-term drop, unfortunately. Uh, as for how they would change, a lot of that is going to depend on where they occur. So, for example, it's possible that over time, something like Paleosuchus or Osteolemus might start to get bigger and might start to look a lot more like Plano, like uh, like Bovarysuchus or 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 a Sabicid. Um, I used to think that was true for the Cuban crocodile too, at least until humans arrived, because that was the main predator on the island. There weren't any big mammalian predators. There were giant flightless owls, but there weren't any. Uh, no big mammalian predators, but I think now that humans and other animals are there, like dogs probably, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen anymore. Although it could have happened had had Cuban left, you know, untouched. Uh, and we might see we might we might see trends toward larger size in some species, uh, partly because of climate change and partly also because of better conservation laws. Uh, until fairly recently, any any alligator that got bigger than a certain size became a suitcase, you know, um, yeah. or it was taken away as a problem alligator when it was just minding its own business in a water hazard on a golf course. But uh, we might start seeing larger sizes in some of them. Uh, I suspect some of them we might start seeing longer snouts, but that's hard to predict. Uh, it's really going to depend a lot on how much room they still have okay because our populations are growing too and as, as ours get bigger theirs get smaller because there's just less room for them um problem with the chinese alligator is that so much of that area has been turned over to agriculture that uh i mean the only space left for the alligators is space that humans don't want either yeah 
so you know it's uh the same is true for other parts of the world too the philippines mesoamerica you know uh so it's hard to say what they how they will physically change i think maybe body size will increase and some of the others like some of the smaller ones might start looking more like less semi-aquatic predators but that's really hard to predict it's an interesting question it really is yeah yeah this is just something i kind of do as a side hobby just like for my own entertainment but i have kind of created my own uh hypothetical planets populated by a well, how do I how do I phrase this? Basically, I'm looking at you know future uh, possible human terraforming foreign planets. You're looking at you're looking at alternative histories. What you're looking at, kind of, sort of, which sort is of sort of like my, a, my favorite science fiction genre. So, uh, I was more I, looking at like uh, say in the future we did terraform a planet and did, did seed it with you know Earth based organisms how that lineage would those lineages would evolve on that hypothetical world so yeah i mean bear in mind evolution it may not be as slow as everyone thought but it's still not going to you know 200 years are still going to look like they do now maybe a bit yeah bigger, about it so uh but i mean all, trying to play alternate history like you know would humans have appeared if tyrannosaurs hadn't gone extinct at the end of the mesozoic that kind of thing or you know what would have happened if the end or division mass extinction hadn't happened would there be vertebrates today you know that kind of thing so uh or would we simply be small worm like things without any without any bone uh you know these are all kind of interesting questions that i've asked myself a lot too uh but I think in the short term, anyway, the only change we're going to see basically is maybe numbers of species alive, at least in the wild, and maybe body size. I think that's what we're going to see. Gotcha. All right. So uh, that kind of leads me to my final question. Okay. Uh, how do you think uh, you know, your study with uh, paleontology and crocodilian evolution should play in modern day uh, crocodilian uh, conservation and biological research? Well, there's a couple of ways I've, I've been trying to focus it. For one thing, I've, I've always tried to uh, apply my work toward improving molecular dating techniques. Uh, crocodilia is the ideal clay. It's a model clay for any research that lies at the earth science, life science interface, because we have limited modern diversity. Okay. There's only, you know, well, 25 recognized species. It's probably going to go up to maybe around 40, but, you know, or 30 or something. But, you know, we can sample every living species for molecular data, for ecological data. We don't have enough of that, but, you know, we follow that. And we have this great fossil record. Okay. Now, there are gaps in that fossil record. It is not complete, but we understand those gaps. We understand why we don't, you know, for example, there's, we don't have much about the early Cayman history, and that's because, frankly, the record for those types of environments in South America is just really poor. So, you know, we, we we understand the gaps we have. We have near universal agreement on most aspects of croc evolution too. Gavialis has been a thorn in my ass into Pacific crocodilus. Otherwise, if you look at the trees, if you look at most of the timing expectations, they're basically the same. Uh, what that means is that we can really apply croc, croc phylogeny toward a wide range of problems. You know, improving molecular dating techniques because we have this rich fossil record is one of them. Uh, the other one, 
in terms of conservation is looking at past ranges and seeing if that might inform uh, uh, efforts at reintroductions. So the Cuban crocodile is one of the most gravely endangered crocs today. Okay, it only occurs in like southwestern Cuba and uh, the Isle of Pines, right off the co Cuban coast. But we know it used to occur in the Dominican Republic, well, Hispaniola anyway. It occurred in the Bahamas. It occurred on Grand Cayman Island. That means that if we're looking to try to, you know, get that population to grow, we can and should do a lot to conserve environments in Cuba. But if you think about it, that's not necessarily going to be successful because in the past you had the Cuban Cuban crocodile is a very aggressive animal, but it tends to be less competitive in mart in the coast in sort of brackish and saltwater environments than the American crocodile that also comes on Cuba. Now in the past, as sea level rose and fell with climate change, the ranges would just shift. You know, they would move inland, out, in, out. Nowadays, when sea level is rising, the range of the Cuban crocodile is going to get sandwiched between the American croc moving in and sugarcane plantations in agriculture, right? So it's not much room for them to move. So one other option we might look at is, are there other places where we can introduce Cuban crocs? Places where they occurred in the past, recent past too. Or places that they may not have occurred in the past, but whose environment is becoming more amenable to them. Okay, whether that's in North America, Mesoamerica, whatever, uh, or elsewhere in the West Indies, you know, it's we might want to do that. It has to be done carefully because, in a sense, essence, what you're doing is you're introducing an invasive species, and that can cause all kinds of problems. Invasive species rarely end well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if you're talking about Australia, Hawaii, you know. Uh, last time I, I only been to Hawaii once, but before I went, I took the le most recent field guide available for birds of Hawaii, and I crossed out all the ones that had gone extinct since that book was published in the 1980s. So, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, you know we are dealing with that crisis, but uh, you know in terms of looking at past ranges, we might want to consider looking at that for conservation. You know, obviously captive breeding programs are important, and conserving current habitat is important <clears throat> and addressing the climate crisis is critically important but you know one other possible approach might be reintroductions and the fossil record can help give us a map toward that all right um any do you have any closing thoughts well, I can't really think of any right now. It's 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 been a privilege talking to you. It's been having a lot of fun. I know I may have come. I am again because I haven't had enough of this. I may have come across as drowsy and monotone and not really all that enthusiastic. But it, it's uh, it's I really have had a good time talking about this. Oh, it's been a pleasure of mine. Trust me, I'm not a morning person either. So <laughs> I used to be, but then I got old. Yeah. Uh so. Uh... If people want to get in contact with you, with you, uh, where can they find you? At? Well, my email address from the University of Iowa would be the best bet. Uh, it's just Chris Hyphen at uiowa uiowa edu. Um, that's probably the best way. Um, I'm a research associate at the Field Museum, so I'm periodically in the collections there. Um, I do some field work, but mostly my work is in museum collections. So. You know, if you find yourself in a museum that has a bunch of crocs in it, there's a non-zero chance you'll run into me um, or one of my students. Uh, 
right now, by the way, I should tell you, I've got three students working on it. Well, I've got five students working on Crocs, two undergrad and three graduate students. One of the grad students is revising the North American gonioflavids, which are these sort of Jurassic and Cretaceous things that are outside the crown, but look like standard crocs. And you have one who just finished a master's thesis on a little crocodiliform from Montana, and he's looking now at, at various PhD projects. And the third one is looking at some Eocene crocodiles from North America and Europe and Asia. The two undergrads are still exploring various various options here. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that's basically the best, yeah, best way to reach me is with email. Enjoy. All right. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. We'll talk later.